Hello my friends, welcome back to Gardo Goes Geek. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing Star Wars The Clone Wars, an amazing series in and of itself, but I'm specifically going to be looking at how I feel that The Clone Wars makes Revenge of the Sith, Star Wars Episode 3, the best Star Wars movie. Once again, I want to make another little quick apology. Um, Hopefully this will be the last uh, episode I'll do this with. Um, But yes, obviously, as you may guess, this episode was meant to be out a lot earlier. Um, Star Wars Day is usually celebrated in May. And this May um, was also not only, you know, May the 4th, uh, which is the generally accepted Star Wars Day, um, but also the 45th anniversary of Star Wars A New Hope um, and the 20th anniversary of Star Wars Attack of the Clones. Now, I originally wanted to look at a lot more Star Wars stuff, um, but then got overwhelmed while re-watching The Clone Wars and, you know, decided to make that the focus of the episode. And I had to catch up a lot on The Clone Wars. There's a lot of this that I hadn't seen before. Um, you know, I, I kind of caught... I was overall familiar with what happened in certain seasons, but there was a lot of filler episodes that I hadn't seen, and a lot of um, a lot of somewhat major episodes that I hadn't seen, especially in the later seasons. Um, and so I wanted to sort of look at them again with fresh eyes and with a much more critical eye. And that's when I eventually came up with the topic of this episode which is how I feel that they make episode three the best Star Wars film. Um, Because episode three has always been my favourite Star Wars film. Um, It's kind of a misnomer. Do I think it's technically the best? No, it's not technically the best, but it's by far and away my favourite Star Wars film. And I'm going to explain why and why I feel The Clone Wars makes it so good. So, please enjoy. First thing I want to make very, very clear is that while I am a Star Wars fan, I am not a huge Star Wars fan. I wouldn't consider myself well-versed in the entirety of Star Wars lore, um... But I am still a fan of Star Wars. And Star Wars fandom has taken on a very particular meaning in recent years. And Star Wars fandom, I find as well, quite toxic a lot of the time. I came to Star Wars quite late um, in my life. I was... I was very much a fan of things like Star Trek when I was a child. Um, 
but something like Star Wars I didn't come to until relatively late um, in my childhood. I think I was nearly approaching my teenage years, actually, when I first got into Star Wars. Um, 1997, when the special editions of the original trilogy came out, I was aware of them, but I didn't watch them. I didn't go to the cinema to go and watch the, the re-releases of the special editions. I had never seen the original trilogy at that point. I had no real interest in it. I remember there was a tie-in range of um, Tazos, was what they were called. They were bizarre little things. They were like things you collect in crisp packets and trade on the playground. I don't know if um, any of my American listeners had anything like that. Um, but we had Pogs and we had Tazos. And Pogs were like their own thing and you could like, you had like a slammer and you try and collect as many as you could and compete with them. Tazos were more kind of a, a collectible thing. And there was a Looney Tunes range, which was quite popular. But then when the special editions of Star Wars came out, they did a, um, a line of Tazos that you could get a nice collectible folder for and put all the different the Tazos that you collected, which had, like, scenes from the movies, and you would build the scenes up. And I remember looking at that, because my friend had that um, that little collection book, and he, he was working really hard to try and complete the collection. And I remember looking at that, and I was thinking, okay, this is, this is kind of cool. This is better than what I'd um, thought it was. But at the same time, I really wasn't too fussed. I was like, oh, I'll probably watch them eventually, but... I think I did try watching the first Star Wars and was quite bored by it. Um, I didn't think much of it at all. The first Star Wars film I remember watching was Star Wars Episode One. I watched that in the cinema and I remember being really excited by the trailers. The trailers were building this as this, this big event and it was really good. Um, in the trailers at least it looked like this big amazing thing and I went to watch it I was 13 when I saw uh, episode one in cinemas um, and me and a friend went and we both really enjoyed it um, he was a bit more of a Star Wars fan than I was but we both quite enjoyed it, it was a, a lot in there that we we liked and looking back at it as an adult a lot of it I, I don't like as much um, I think things like um, a lot of Jar Jar Binks's jokes, which obviously I laughed at when I was a lot younger, they're not very funny anymore. Um, you know, a lot of the action scenes that just seem to happen from nowhere, like the the fish in the undersea uh, segment, it's like yeah, okay, they're entertaining enough, but. I find a lot more interest now in the, the political side of everything. Um, the political storyline um, with Palpatine when she gets to... when Padme gets to Coruscant um, and manipulates her into deposing the Chancellor. I find that a lot more interesting as an adult watching episode one. But... Um, or, you know, the politics between the Jedi Council. But episode one I'm not a huge fan of. I think... The pod race is great. The the lightsaber fight at the end is great. Um, but a lot of it is, is very forgettable. But it was off the back of episode one that, that I finally watched the original trilogy. 
and I remember quite liking them. Uh, it was the special editions I watched first. Obviously, they were the ones that were doing the rounds. They ended up on television um, off the back of episode one coming out. And yeah, I quite liked them. Um, Empire was obviously my favourite, although I quite liked Return of the Jedi. I, oh, I say quite like... I've gone very back and forth on Return of the Jedi. Um, the first half of the film in Jabba's Palace is a bit... a bit tedious in places, but at the same time is interesting. I think it takes up too much of the total runtime. The final battle on Endor, um, the fact that it's another Death Star really annoys me. Like, it's just another Death Star. And, and yeah, that I, I don't like that as much. But the, the emotion in the final fight between Luke and, Luke and Vader, I'm totally on board with that. I really enjoy that. Um, so having that as part of the storyline. Yeah, I like that. I've got time for that. So in some respects, while I think Return of the Jedi is a very, very good emotional conclusion for a lot of this story in the original trilogy, um, in terms of the thematics, I also am not as sold on it as a a narrative conclusion because I feel it treads a lot of the same ground that the previous two films already did and did better um, but yeah there's elements of it I, I, I still really enjoy to this day <sighs> episode 2 I remember watching in the cinema and I remember by that point I was already a fan of the original trilogy and the conclusion of episode two, the start of the Clone Wars, I was very, very intrigued as to how we get from the end of episode two to where we find ourselves in A New Hope. Because the clones were stormtroopers, but the Separatists had the plans for the Death Star. And Palpatine was obviously the Emperor and Sidious... Um, and it's like, you know, Luke, Anakin was this huge hero and yet he's going to become Darth Vader, even though we'd already seen elements of it. So, yeah, I, I, I have a lot more time for episode two than a lot of other people I've noticed. Um, the only parts I find really tedious in it are some of the romance scenes between, um, Anakin and Padme. And that's only because I find the the dialogue, the romantic dialogue between them, so god-awful. Uh, but a lot of the, you know, the political machinations, the sort of the, the who created the clones and why, um, a lot of those aspects I really enjoy. Um, that's the sort of... Yeah, that's the sort of mystery that I quite like. And having it all be anchored by Obi-Wan Kenobi was great. So then, of course, I was really, really excited for episode three. By this point, I would, I was reading novels as well. I was involved in the Star Wars novels. I was reading the New Jedi Order, which was coming out at around this time, I believe. And 
I was really enjoying them. I think the new Jedi Order books are great, and I'll probably do uh, a whole episode devoted to them at some point. Um, I mean, if not discussing the whole Star Wars EU as a whole. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd read some of the Expanded Universe, but I was especially enjoying the new Jedi Order series. Um, and if anyone hasn't read them, I, I strongly recommend just re read Vector Prime by R.A. Salvatore and see where you go from there. Because I think it's a great introduction to the EU and some of the characters in it. And there's so many awesome moments that follow in that series that, yeah, it's well worth a read. Um, but episode three, I remember really being excited for. I watched the first trailer for episode three, that that trailer that kind of ties in all the previous movies together. Not just the previous prequels, but the original trilogy by having the dialogue from Alec Guinness where he describes Anakin and his fall into Darth Vader and they set that alongside scenes from the new film. Ah, oh, I, I must have watched that trailer so many times. Um, like, watching it on the Apple movies, just, like, watching it and then refreshing it and then watching it again. I, I did that constantly. I, I must have given that thing several thousand views just by myself. Um, so, yeah, I was excited for episode three when it came out. And, yeah, I went to the cinema. I watched it. I loved it. Um... Episode 3 quickly became and has probably remained my favourite Star Wars movie. I think it's a brilliant conclusion to the prequel trilogy and ties it right back to the original trilogy in a way I love. Um, and really kind of anchors the two trilogies together in such a satisfying way. Um, that for me it just hit all the right buttons and it is probably the film I've gone back to and rewatched the most out of all of the Star Wars films um, I've noticed when I tend to rewatch the Star Wars films I don't tend to rewatch the prequels uh, the, sorry the original trilogy I tend to rewatch one of the prequels usually episode 2 or episode 3 and quite more often than not it's episode 3 Um. And it's because, yeah, I just, I really like it. Um, and I think even things like the the Machete Order that suggest watching episode two and three as a, a giant flashback in between Empire and Jedi, I think in that episode three would work even better if you intercut it with Return of the Jedi and really showed Anakin's fall echoing the steps that Luke is taking in Return of the Jedi. Because Luke is... He's portrayed quite villainous at certain points of Return of the Jedi. You're meant to think he's he's following in his father's footsteps until right at the end. Um, which is great. A lot of people seem to have forgotten that Luke is quite flawed um, off the back of the sequel trilogy. Uh, it's one reason why I really like The Last Jedi. I think The Last Jedi does a great service to Luke as a character. Um, despite the fact it differs so greatly from the EU, which I also loved. Um, 
but the sequel trilogy is a discussion for another time. So yeah, obviously, by the time episode three came out, I was I was excited. I'd been involved in the films. I'd watched the Clone Wars micro series that had come out, the one by Gendy Tartofsky, the guy behind Samurai Jack. I'd seen, I'd I'd played the video games. I'd read the novels. I was really really excited, really enjoying it. And so episode three for me was that perfect culmination of everything. And then we learned about the Clone Wars series. Now, as I said, the Clone Wars TV show was not the first um, thing to explore the concept of the Clone Wars. In between Episode 2 and Episode 3, Lucasfilm launched what they called the Clone Wars Multimedia Project. Essentially, there was a TV show um, headed by Gendy Tartovsky, who, like I said, is the... um, the producer and um well is the showrunner essentially responsible for not only dexter's laboratory but most especially samurai jack um and he headed up the star wars clone wars micro series um which was essentially a series of shorts that aired on cartoon network um the the first two seasons were 10 episodes of about three to five minutes apiece. And the third series was a series of five episodes that reached about 10 minutes long. Um, and so essentially built and told a story. Um, the first two seasons focused on pretty much one major battle. Um, that being the Battle of Munalist, um, early on in the Clone Wars, with Anakin and Obi-Wan both being involved. Um, series 2, however, was the lead-up to the Battle of Coruscant that launches Episode 3, and was designed to be in canon with that. It was to show how Anakin became a Jedi Knight, and how, you know, what Anakin and Obi-Wan were doing why they were so far away from Coruscant, but also where Jedi such as Mace Windu and Yoda were during the attack on Coruscant. Um, You know, what Jedi were defending uh, Chancellor Palpatine, that sort of thing. It was very good. I I really enjoyed it. I've got a lot of time for it. Um, But as I said, it was a multimedia project, so it wasn't just the TV show. There was also tie-in comics, um, many of which focused on... Uh, particular characters throughout the course of the Clone Wars, um, the most popular one being a Jedi Knight known as Quinlan Voss, um, who George Lucas took a shine to, um, and these comics also expanded and, uh, along with the the micro series, gave greater roles to Jedi Knights from episode episode two, um, such as Ayla Secura, Kit Fisto. Um, Shark T and a few others who all got oh Luminar and Dooley as well who all got a bit more to do and got some elaboration in the show. Um, there were also novels that did the same thing. Um, there was 
a couple of video games set during this time period, most notably the Star Wars The Clone Wars um, video game, which is sort of a vehicle-based combat game, um, taking place on several planets and tying into the old Tales of the Jedi comic book series, um, which is set in the era of the Knights of the Old Republic, um, dealing with a, a Sith Lord called Exar Kun and his disciple Ulit Keldroma. Um, it was pretty good. I, I quite liked that game. I completed it. Um, it introduced the the clone tank, um, which hadn't been seen in the films, and I don't think would be seen in episode three, but went on to be included in um, several other games. Star Wars Battlefront Two launched around this time period as well, um, closer to the release of uh, episode three and sort of explored the story of the um of the 501st legion and took them through several of the major battles uh, that we'd seen in the clone wars um episode th uh, star wars battlefront 1 which was also active during this time frame had um tie-in maps and some of the first examples of uh, dlc on the original xbox um, where they introduced the characters of Kit Fisto and Asajj Ventress, who was a uh, new villainess created purely for the Clone Wars multimedia project as sort of a dark Jedi disciple who could act as uh, Dooku's personal assassin. Um, several other characters uh, got expanded more in the comics and the novels. Uh, Republic Commando was also set during this time frame, uh, another very popular game um, focusing on a group of elite clones. Um, the game is split over several missions, uh, one of which involves starting at the Battle of Geonosis, which is the battle from Episode 2. Um, the clone commando characters got explored in a series of novels by Karen Travis, um, uh, an author who was working on Star Wars novels at the time, um, where she tied them quite closely to the Mandalorians and explained a lot of elements there regarding the Mandalorians and their culture um, based on what had been established so far in previous comics and series regarding the characters of Boba Fett and Jango Fett. Um, some of which had been thrown into chaos a bit by the reveal in episode two of Boba being Django's clone son. Um, but yeah, she was she was doing a pretty good job there tying everything together. So yeah, that was the Clone Wars multimedia project. I didn't read many of those novels, um, the Clone wars specific novels but i did watch the micro series and i as i said i played the video games i played clone wars i played some of republic commando i don't think i ever finished it um but i wasn't as keen on shooters back then as i, I am now I'm, I'm more comfortable with shooters as a genre now um mainly because i've had a lot of shooter elements forced into a lot of the rpgs i like um and i think it's one i still own on xbox so i might go back to it um battlefront i i played quite a bit and i didn't play it online though i didn't have xbox live back in that day um but yeah i enjoyed it there was a lot of good stuff here um and there were a lot of interesting new characters uh, you know getting to explore some of these jedi um 
seeing characters like Quinlan Voss and the comics or Asajj Ventress and seeing them develop and being given these rich backstories that made you want to know more about them. And then um, some of the Jedi that had appeared in the final battle in Geonosis, like Kit Fisto and Ayla Secura, getting developed into these quite interesting Jedi characters where it's like, oh, I want to see more of them. And, oh, they're quite cool. They've got a personality and, they, you know, they, they became characters um so yeah it was great to see um and i really really enjoyed it um but that while it was a precursor that was always designed to have an end date which was when episode three released and essentially those three years that we spent in real life between the three between the two films of episode two and episode three um all those comics and novels and everything else were designed to bridge that gap and show us the full story of the Clone Wars. And I think they did a good job. Um, you know, I know a lot of fans were very, very pleased. There were some... There were some issues already with how the prequels were affecting what had previously been understood to be EU canon. Um and how the Clone Wars was changing. Um, but for the most part, I think most of the audience generally reacted to it quite well. But then it was announced a few years after the prequel trilogy that the Clone Wars would be getting a second series. Now, Clone Wars was announced in at Star Wars Celebration 3 in April 2005. Um, George Lucas announced that they were working on a 3D continuation of the pilot series, which is the micro-series. And he hired Dave Filoni after having seen several episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender that Dave Filoni had worked on. By 2005, uh, July 2005, pre-production had begun, um, and George Lucas was quite heavily involved with Dave Filoni in crafting a lot of this series apparently Dave Filoni ran pretty much every idea they came up with by George Lucas um got approval got George Lucas's input onto tweaking the storyline uh, and what they could do with it the series was designed um to be episodic and this does kind of reflect the um the original Clone Wars micro series season one and two of that are essentially anthologies um you know while the overarching story of those first two seasons is the battle of Munalist, um we do cut away at several points we get um a whole episode um well two episodes in fact i think dealing with how asajj ventress enters dooku's service it's at least one whole episode it might be two um, there's an episode set on Mon Calamari with Kit Fisto leading a whole load of undersea clone troopers against um, the Quarren, who are the, the octopus-like race um, that live on that planet. Um, Mon Calamari is Admiral Akbar's homeworld, for those who don't know. Um, the second season i believe has a couple of episodes which focus on luminara and Dooley and her padawan baris ofi 
um, traveling to Ilum to craft a new lightsaber so that Barris can become a Jedi Knight. Um, there's also at least two episodes which focus on Mace Windu fighting an army of droids on Dathomir. So it's like, while there was a continuous plot, it was also an anthology. We we saw other battlefields of the Clone Wars, and this series was supposed to carry on that in that vein. It would be an anthology show. It would be episodic. It wouldn't focus just on Anakin Skywalker's story. Um, we'd have episodes dedicated to clone troopers, to other Jedi, even to the villains in some cases. We also learn that there'd be a new character introduced called Ahsoka Tano, um, as well as bringing back other characters. Um, we'd have this new character that would join our main cast, as it were, and get developed alongside them, which was met with some scepticism by fans. Um, they had someone brought on to help score the series, um, with the goal of sort of giving each planet in the galaxy like its own theme music. Um, Kevin Kiner was the one who ended up composing uh, the original score for each episode. And a lot of his work in this is phenomenal. It's um, very, very Star Wars. It feels very much inspired by all the John, the amazing John Williams film scores that have come before it while not being beholden to them. Um there's a lot of bizarre musical choices in some some episodes um mixtures of all sorts of different ethnic um origin um you know ethnic origin instruments um you know so you have you can sort of build a culture from a world by using um instruments that here we might find on different corners of the globe um but put them all together to create a unique sound for this pl alien planet. And I think it works very, very well. Um, and the series was going to come out on uh, Cartoon Network, and it was going to run um, from 2008. Uh, it was going to be kicked off by the first story arc being edited together into a feature film, um, which released in early 2008 and the series followed soon afterwards. The film, I think as it stands, is the worst reviewed and least commercially successful Star Wars film. But I don't think it's bad at all. It's... I think the making it a theatrical film definitely drew attention to the series... But I don't think it works as a theatrical film. I think it works as a television episode, a television film, as as like an extended pilot. It was quite good that they brought back some of the um, the celebrity voices for that particular film. Um, they brought back Christopher Lee as Count Dooku, Samuel L. Jackson as Mace Windu. But I don't think it was necessary. I think a lot of the Clone Wars actors that they have do a phenomenal job throughout the series. Um, you know, there's a lot of quite established um, 
voice actors involved in this show. Matt Lanter does Anakin Skywalker, James Arnold Taylor does Obi-Wan Kenobi, um, Ashley Eckstein does Ahsoka, uh, Tom Kane does Yoda, um, Matthew Wood, who obviously worked at Lucasfilm and did the voice of Grievous in the films, he returns as Grievous in this and does the voice of a lot of the battle all the battle droids just as he does in episode three um but you know uh terence c carson as mace windu in the main show ian abercrombie as um palpatine nicka futterman as asajj ventress catherine tabor as padme and Corey burton as uh, count dooku they all do a fantastic job um so as do as do all the other voice actors there are so many voice actors that come into this over over the years it ran for um that all do a brilliant job um and all the way from you know tra- who you would think of as traditional voice actors like um Jim Cummings and Robin Atkin Downs all the way up to um you know to people like John Favreau um, and Katie Sackhoff, you know, who are more well known for, you know, being in front of the camera rather than just doing a voice. Um, and obviously there are other characters that return from the, the film series. Anthony Daniels returns as C-3PO. Daniel Logan returned as Boba Fett after playing him in um, episode episode two um don't know where my head went then and obviously you know there's plenty of other recurring voice talent like kevin michael richardson um phil lamar that just do some brilliant work in this show you know and towards the end there was even a couple of surprise guest stars like mark hamill and liam neeson who you know did some great work in this and Sam Witwer as well, when he comes back as a particular character, he was incredible. Um, so, yeah, that, all around, I think Clone Wars was a very, very good show. The animation style is very caricaturish in a way. The The character models are similar to sort of the the quite pronounced art style of the Gendy Tartovsky micro-series, um, but smoothed out in some ways. A lot of the colouring is done in a very painted style, um, which works really well, actually. Um, the the sort of the, the cartoonish style is mainly evident on the characters. A lot of the... A lot of the um, the ships and the the special effects in like the space battles and stuff they are done in the exact same in the exact same manner as they might be in the films and as a result looks spectacular um, and as this is a show that is built around its action um, that works very well um, the character designs do evolve and change as the series goes on. Um, they become a bit softer and a bit less harsh 
and the animation becomes obviously a lot better as it carries on. Season one is and the original film are probably the weakest in a lot of ways because of um everyone just sort of getting used to the technology. Um you know, the animation becomes a lot more fluid by about sort of the latter half of series one and most of series season two. Uh, and then by about halfway through season three, um, the main characters all sort of get like a slight redesign. Um, and they still have the, the caricatured faces. Um, but they also sort of just soften more into a, a bit more recognisable design. And the animation also becomes more fluid as it goes on. Um, which makes the action sequences a lot better um, and also allows them to make the characters move with a bit more dynamism and a bit more realisticness. Um, for example, anyone who's seen my Final Space episode, um, I praised in there how a lot of the characters are doing things on screen, even when they're not speaking. Um, and when characters are speaking, they're emoting and... It, it's very passionate there's a lot of that in this this is this is very much star wars um you know in, in by, by its very design from the ground up it is star wars it is designed to look and feel and sound and be experienced exactly the same as any of the films and i think it works very well for that um it ran for a few years season one came out in 2008 um season two which got the subtitle rise of the bounty hunters started running in 2009 finished in april 2010 um season three which was subtitled secrets revealed was 2010 to 2011 season four which was subtitled battle lines ran from 2011 to 2012 and season five um which had no subtitle um ran from 2012 to 2013 season one and season two are mostly sort of self-contained episodes if there were some episodes where plot threads carried on um but never more for like two or three episodes before the plot moved on to something else um although one of the first episodes out the one of the first storylines out the gate is uh uh, regarding a new separatist ship called the Malevolence, which is captained by Grievous, which runs for three episodes. And obviously the, the film was an edited-together version of a, a larger story arc. So it may not be fair to say they were mostly self-contained. There are a few extended storylines in there. However, the extended storylines become much more of a thing as the show goes on. Um, to the point that, for example, season five is totally split into these four episode arcs. Um, and that's true of season four as well. Season four is split into into anywhere from sort of three to five episode arcs. Um, and it means that some of the sort of done in one stories are sort of left by the wayside towards the end of the show. But I do think they should have them as much room as they need to tell the right story. And some of these stories did deserve the extra runtime and work very well with it. However, after season five, the show was cancelled. 
the problem was season six was already in development. You know, Lucasfilm announced in early 2013 that the Clone Wars would be winding down. Um, and obviously it was it was shelved. <laughs> but season six was already in development. 13 episodes were completely finished. And some of the other episodes were well into their planning stages. Um, and so what happened was the completed episodes were released on Netflix as The Lost Missions, making a 13-episode season um, for season six. The other episodes became what's called The Clone Wars Legacy Project. Essentially, at the time it was cancelled, 65 more episodes were in production, or different element, different stages of production. Um, so 13 of those got finished and became The Lost Missions, um, but several additional arcs were in different stages. Of the other episodes, um, several will turn into other projects. Um, I think three sets of episodes were released as what they called animatic story reels um, on the Star Wars website. I don't think they're on there anymore, unfortunately, um, but they included... Um, a a story series called The Crystal Crisis on Utapau, um, which is four episodes where Obi-Wan and Anakin investigate an arms deal. Um, and it's dealing with Anakin's feelings after what happens at the end of episode five. It was included in the season six Blu-ray, though. Um, the Bad Batch episodes were originally aired at Anaheim, Celebration Anaheim, in 2015. Um, but then later got reworked into the eventual Series 7. Of the others, though, um, four episodes became a comic series, which was the Darth Maul Son of, Dath Son of Dathomir series, which was released by Marvel Comics. And eight episodes, which was originally going to be released as two four-episode story arcs, focusing on the characters of Quinlan Voss and Asajj Ventress, were turned into a novel by Christy Golden and released as Dark Disciple. Um, I've read Dark Disciple leading up to this for the first time. It's quite good. I really enjoyed it. I was listening to it on Audible as well. And I will say, I don't know if this is true of every Star Wars novel on Audible, but in this one, they have put the effort in to make this feel like Star Wars. There is music, there is sound effects, um, the actor reading it does very good impressions of most of the main characters' voices, and for any characters where such vocal processing may be needed, they put vocal processing on his voice to make him sound like certain characters. So when he speaks a line as Bosk, they use the same vocal processing they used for Bosk in the animated series. Um, ditto for when he speaks as um, one of the battle droids. And, yeah, it's it's very good. Like I said, I don't know if that's true of all Star Wars books in audio form, um, but it's definitely true of this one, and I totally recommend it on that alone. I kind of hope it does become more common um, with Star Wars books. Um, 
I think more audiobooks should do that, to be honest, turn it into an, an audio drama. Many of the other episodes, though, were just lost to time. Um, some of them were not far along enough in development to be used, um, which is a shame. Um, but it is what it is. Um, however, after... You know, Disney acquired Star Wars in 2014 and they kept the Clone Wars as part of Disney's new canon. Now, the canonicity of the Clone Wars had been discussed already. I mentioned this in a previous episode where I discussed the canon within Star Wars. And essentially, because Dave Filoni's Clone Wars series was coming in collaboration with George Lucas. As I said, every story I did was ran past George, Lu George Lucas. So to the people making Star Wars canon, it had mu as much weight, almost, as the films, which meant it had more weight than any of the novel series that George Lucas wasn't involved in. Um, and so when, for example, the Clone Wars introduced its own version of Mandalore with a completely different lore and backstory to what Karen Travis was writing, for example, in the Clone Wars, uh, Clone Commando series, it annoyed people. Um, to the point that Karen Travis herself left Star Wars. She stopped working for Lucasfilm. She left the Clone Commando series unfinished um, because she was that pissed off with it. And... I sympathise with her. I really do. I wish maybe they had made more of a concerted effort to keep things canon and that Dave Filoni hadn't been so willing to just sort of throw things out. But um, I do get why they did it. I'd, I've come to realise with canon... Canon is a great thing to have, a canon and a continuity and uh, being able to say that this is why this happened. But I also don't think you should let canon stop you from telling a good story. If you have a good story to tell, but it will break canon in some way, feel free to break that canon. Do it. Explain it if you want in the story, but do it. Tell the story. If the story is worth telling, tell it. Don't let canon hold you back. And I know that view makes me relatively unique in a lot of nerd circles. There's a lot of people who don't seem to share that view. They're like, oh, no, canon must be respected. No. You can respect it to a point, but you can always head canon away of making something work. You know, if you disagree with it. Like, there's plenty of people who try and head canon the fact that, you know, certain elements of the MCU, for example, aren't canon to it, like Daredevil. Despite evidence to the contrary in the way that the shows are presented and the way things are being characters are being treated but you know if they do a new daredevil you know if the new daredevil show has nothing to do with the previous daredevil show 
I'll be disappointed, but as long as it's a good story, I'll be fine with it. <laughs> so, and I think that's the same with the Clone Wars. I think the Clone Wars, you know, it invalidates a lot of the old Clone Wars multimedia project. Um, the novels, the canons, the novels, the series, the comics. But there are elements that can still work with it and should, you know. And that was what Lucasfilm was trying to do before the Disney merger, is trying to work it so that anything that can still work together will work together. That was where their tears of canon came in. But once the Disney buyout happened, they didn't need to do that. Disney just said that the films of the Clone Wars series were canon, nothing else was. And I think the impact that that show had is important with the fact that Disney said that that's the only other thing apart from the films that's canon. And they kept Dave Filoni on. They moved Dave Filoni on to Star Wars Rebels. And he's since gone on to make several other shows with Disney uh, and be involved in... Um, you know, the Mandalorian, the Bad Batch, um, you know, he's the closest Star Wars has at this point to uh, a Kevin Feige type character. And obviously he has this this long history of working with George Lucas and knowing what George Lucas's plans for this series are, which is great. But yeah, as I said, the Clone Wars series, very good. Um, has a lot of great multi-episode arcs that focus on characters um, with mature but still family accessible storytelling like there are some there are some dark moments throughout this um, you know characters can die but they also can evolve and the bleak nature of the war can be shown but you know but at the same time the action is still engaging and thrilling in that traditional Star Wars way and yes, there can be still be quite a few f bits of filler, especially in the early seasons, but by the end, pretty much every episode is essential. There's a lot of good stuff to be seen here. And so I, like many, many others, was thoroughly excited when it was announced that Star Wars was getting, uh, Clone Wars was getting a season seven. And this was announced in 2020. You know, it premiered. February 2020, it was revealed 2019, I believe. Um, the final seasons, um, as it was called, is split into three four-episode arcs, two of which, the Bad Batch arc and the um, Ahsoka's Walkabout arc, are adaptations of previously um, developed story reels. And the final one is The Siege of Mandalore, which was always intended to be the conclusion of the show um, and had been in development for a while. They could have done far more with the final season, in my opinion, but I get the feeling they wanted to stick with these episodes in particular because they had all been cleared with George Lucas in the same way that the other, the rest of the show had, despite George Lucas not having any direct input on season seven as a whole in the same way that he did in the previous episodes um but yeah this final season does conclude the clone wars it concludes a lot of the main story arcs of the clone wars series in a way that also ties them into episode three in its final moments and i think combining that 
with the previous run of the Clone Wars, which was fantastic, helps to make the Clone Wars incredible. Like, it, it, it is one of my favourite things in Star Wars uh, that Star Wars has ever produced. Um, and uh, that the I've experienced in Star Wars. And together, the whole thing not only makes the prequels better and, you know, makes them better films, but I, I truly, truly do think it makes Episode 3 the best Star Wars film in terms of the narrative weight um, that it brings to a conclusion. Like I said earlier, Episode 3 was built up and I think is a perfect bow to tie off those two trilogies and connect the two together. You throw Clone Wars into that mix as well, and it works phenomenally. And over the rest of this episode, I'm going to break down the for me what for me are the key plots of the Clone Wars series and how they develop um, elements of the prequels, but also how they tie into episode three, where they do or tie into those final season of the Clone Wars. And... Yeah. I, yeah, I hope you'll join me for it, because I think it's going to be fun. A Padawan learner. I'm Ahsoka Tano. I am Obi-Wan Kenobi, your new master. I met your service, Master Kenobi, but I'm afraid I've actually been assigned to Master Skywalker. What? No, 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 no. There must be some mistake. He's the one who wanted the Padawan. No. Master Yoda was very specific. I'm assigned to Anakin Skywalker, and he is to supervise my Jedi training. I think the first main plot to talk about when discussing the Clone Wars is perhaps the most obvious difference between the Clone Wars and the prequel trilogy which is the character of Ahsoka Tano. Ahsoka Tano is introduced in the Clone Wars film as a, a Padawan youngling who is assigned to Anakin Skywalker. Obi-Wan had actually requested a new Padawan as Anakin was now a Jedi Knight, and so Obi-Wan wanted to teach a new Padawan. However, Ahsoka is assigned to Anakin by Master Yoda. Now, Ahsoka herself is a Togruton uh, Jedi. Um, she's quite headstrong, um, quite reckless. In fact, she's introduced as quite a flawed character. Um... She's somewhat rebellious. Um, she uses a lot of nicknames for characters, um, calling Skywalker Sky Guy. You know, she speaks at, with perfect ease around those around her. Um, we find out that her Jedi Master before Anakin was Plo Koon, um, who found her as a, as a young child. Um and she remains quite close with him. Plo Koon actually gets the the first major arc in season one as a supporting Jedi Knight. And he's very supportive of Ahsoka. 
Ahsoka herself, though, she's, as I said, quite headstrong, quite flawed. Um, we see her quite often making rash decisions, ignoring orders, and receiving almost no repercussions for doing so. And naturally, and as expected, this rubbed a lot of fans the wrong way. Like, I want to be clear on this. Despite the fact that Ahsoka is a fan favourite now, um, who has gone on to reappear in Star Wars Rebels, um, The Mandalorian, and is even getting her own spin-off live-action show, Ahsoka was not a popular character when she was introduced. Like, I think people would have been more forgiving of her if she'd shown some subservience to the characters around her. But I also think that would have led to much more accusations of um, Mary Sue writing than she got in the first place. Because... Unlike, I'm not saying Ray is a Mary Sue, but I do see where the accusations of that come from. Ray is a very capable character. She's got a lot of similar elements to her, to how Ahsoka does on paper. You know, they're both quite headstrong, quite willful, quite determined to do the right thing, and quite reckless. <sighs> But Ray in the sequel trilogy is never shown to be wrong. She's never shown really to fail. Ahsoka is. And for a while, she sort of escapes reprimand from it. But this changes over several early episodes. And... This was done deliberately by Dave Filoni um, to create a character that he knew people wouldn't like and then to endear her to us by addressing those flaws that she has in her character. You know, she is shown as disobeying orders while leading a fighter squadron into an ambush. She disobeys an order to come back. As a result, all of her pilots are wiped out and a, uh, a cruiser, a Republic cruiser, is destroyed, and another one is damaged quite badly. And her friend, Admiral Eularen, the admiral who serves under Anakin, is injured. So, of course, she feels remorse and regret for that. Um, she leads... That happens in the episode Storm over Iloth. Um... There's also an episode where, um, and I believe it's another part of the, the Ryloth arc, um, where she's being flanked and she's about to be overrun and she's valiantly defending her position with a, a, a small group of clones. Um, and Anakin flies down to evacuate her and she almost refuses to go. But Anakin, being able to see the whole battle knows that she's about to be overrun and only after he sort of 
basically drags her on board the ship. Does she see that that's the case and that she was about to lose as she watches the clones that she left behind get massacred by the droids? Perhaps her most pivotal episode of development is an episode in um, season two called Lightsaber Lost. Um, on a mission with Anakin to the lower levels of Coruscant, she has her lightsaber stolen. And she then tries to get it back. And she ends up teaming up with a very slow and steady Jedi Master named Terra Sanube. Terra Sanube is basically if a turtle became a Jedi. Um, you know, he's very slow, very methodical, very old, but also very wise. And he teaches Ahsoka throughout this episode that taking slow path can lead to victory as well you don't have to rush in and be reckless and it's one of the most significant episodes of character development that Ahsoka gets um, and also is a, a great introduction to the character of Sanube, um, who later reappears in the Kenobi series um, as a victim of Darth Vader and the Inquisitors um, which moved quite a lot of people when he appeared in that episode. Um, so, yeah, Ahsoka is a very well-developed character, despite her, you know, her off-screen friendships that are developed with several of these Jedi. Um, you know, her and Barriss Ophi are quite close, but we see Barriss Ophi acting... Ophi? Ophi? We see Barris acting in a much more reverent way to her own Jedi Master, Luminara, as well as um, Anakin and the other characters around her. And that acts in starts stark contrast to Ahsoka. But eventually we get to the point where Ahsoka is helping Anakin and Obi-Wan in a lot of their fights. She's very well respected by the pair of them by several other Jedi Masters, and by their clone commanders, both Captain Rex and Commander Cody. We then also see how she is trusted by numerous other characters. And, you know, not just the characters we expect, like Padme obviously trusts her because Anakin trusts her. She's Anakin's Padawan. So we see episodes of her with Padme and they interact and it's quite sweet. But also there's a mission where they have to rescue um, Jedi Master Even Peel and his own uh, Republic soldiers, including Admiral Tarkin. Yes, that Tarkin from the original Star Wars trilogy. Um... And even Peel trusts her. Like, when he dies and he has to pass over a vital piece of information, he trusts Ahsoka with it. And this does rub Tarkin out the wrong way, but that's a different story. Tarkin is... Tarkin earns the trust... Skywalker earns Tarkin's trust. Ahsoka, not so much. 
Um, but she also gets saved by Chewbacca in an episode. She meets and interacts with the son of a separatist senator called Lux Bonteri. And his mother, Mina Bonteri, is killed. And his father was killed uh, as a separatist sol- uh, you know, as a separatist soldier was killed by clones in a battle. So he has every reason to hate the Jedi. Her and him and Ahsoka form quite a close bond. And, you know, Lux Bonteri then goes on to, you know, get Ahsoka's help um, when he's captured by a group called Death Watch. He appeals to her, as well as other characters, to help form a resistance movement on Onderon. You know... The character of Bo-Katan, um, who I'll be covering in more detail a bit later on, um, trusts Ahsoka, who was her enemy, to help her fight Darth Maul. You know, it's all... She earns the trust of a lot of characters and the confidence of a lot of characters because she proves herself... She is capable in battle. Um, you know, she gets trusted by... She becomes almost like the close guardian of Prince Lee Char during the invasion of Moncala. Um, so, yeah. She goes from being a very flawed character to a very, very capable character by getting actual character development. And it's done very well. And we see how that impacts her relationship with Anakin and Obi-Wan, how she brings them closer together as well, how she helps to mature Anakin. Like, Anakin becomes a much more capable character. Because essentially when we when we start the Clone Wars, it's several months, say six months, after episode two. Anakin is still quite close to his portrayal in episode two. He's a bit more experienced. But he can still be angry. He can still be unsure of himself. He can still be... You know, lack the confidence that he gets later. The Anakin that we see in episode three is a much more capable warrior. But also more at ease with himself, more confident in his own skills, even showing an ability to lead in certain respects. And a lot of that is down to his development with Ahsoka as her mentor, as her trainer. So then the question becomes, well, where is Ahsoka during episode three? This was explained in the closing arc of Season 5 of The Clone Wars. A bomb goes off inside the Jedi Temple, inside the main hangar. And it looks like the bomb was planted by a Jedi. And... You know... 
there's an investigation. But it looks like Ahsoka planted that bomb. And she is brought before a tribunal by Tarkin. Um, you know, put on trial, exiled from the Jedi Order. Despite the fact that she's innocent. Despite the fact that she knows she's innocent. How she tries to investigate it. And her strong proclamations of her innocence compel Anakin to investigate. And that's when Anakin finds the real culprit, Barris. Um, you know, how the war has corrupted Barris and she took the steps to plant the bomb. And Anakin manages to clear Ahsoka's name. But it's, by then it's too late. Her name's cleared, but she's already been punished by the Jedi. So despite the fact the Jedi offer her the chance to return, she walks away from them. She feels betrayed by the Jedi. You know, at a loss from them. You know, the Jedi have failed her. As I'll explain how they've failed so many other people throughout the Clone Wars. And Anakin begs with her not to go. Like, begs with her, saying he understands her desire to leave, but she can't leave. But she has to. She leaves. She she leaves Anakin alone. And we see that change Anakin. Anakin who is already starting to struggle with his own anger. His anger coming back in waves towards the end of the arcs. To, towards the, the latter half of the series as he's dealing with slavers and all these other cruel evil beings profiting off of the clone wars and the anger that he feels as he pursues exactly what's happened to ahsoka and how much more of that darkness he will then continue to embrace going forward and it makes it clear why Anakin himself feels so betrayed by the Jedi in episode three, why he's willing to turn on them, why he sees them as a failure, and how he's so easily corrupted by Darth Sidious. Because we see the loss that he's felt at Ahsoka leaving. being forced out but even when Ahsoka leaves her character development doesn't stop she returns in season 7 um, in two major story arcs the first we see her 
encounter Rafa and Trace Martez, two sisters in the lower levels of Coruscant. Um, Rafa kind of trying to trade and trying to, to better their position by getting involved with criminal elements. Um, and trying to, to make a better life for her and her sister. And Ahsoka sees how they've been kept almost away from the war. It's affecting them, but, you know, despite the Jedi thinking that these are the people they're fighting for, the war hasn't affected Rafa and Trace, necessarily. And when it does, they're... The, the biggest effect the war has on them is when Zero the Hut escaped from prison and a speeder crashed into the wall of their apartment and killed their parents. And they tell this story to Ahsoka to explain their, their distrust and their hatred of the Jedi. And we see that, you know, we see through them that they're probably not alone in that assessment. Many other people probably feel the same about the Jedi. The Clone Wars is having a negative effect across the galaxy. People will turn on the Jedi. And that makes it... That also, as well, explains elements such as Palpatine's takeover. You know, we see from the reaction of Tarkin and how he treats Ahsoka and how Ahsoka interacts with him that he doesn't trust the Jedi either. And he's a military officer in the Grand Army of the Republic who works for the Jedi. But he's also the one that pursues and prosecutes her when she's on trial. And that experience within the Jedi, as well as outside of the Jedi, changes Ahsoka herself. And I think that's what's made her such a fan favourite. And I definitely think she is the standout character of the Clone Wars. There are many, many, many great characters in the Clone Wars. And there's a reason the Clone Wars remain canon. And there's a reason it's a well that writers have gone back to to pick characters from and as much as star wars does have an element of um you know it's the much parodied the the glup shito meme where it's like a random character will appear and it's usually either a character from the comics or from the clone wars who general audiences have no idea who they are but fans of either the comics or the um the Clone Wars, where we were to say, oh, it's that character, and they're going to be super important later on. And Marvel have started doing this as well to a certain point, but not nowhere near to the extent that Star Wars has. 
But you can see why even with those types of characters, Ahsoka is the one that's that people have gravitated towards and latched onto and want to see more of. Because she has the most complete character and the most complete arc of any original character in the Clone Wars. And even more than some of the Jedi. You know, her, Anakin and Obi-Wan are the three leads of this show. And even when she's written out of it for Series 6, her presence is still felt. We feel her loss as it affects Anakin and Obi-Wan. Less so Obi-Wan, but very much Anakin. And the scenes of the three of them together are fantastic. They feel like a found family. You know, where they're in episodes such as the Mortis arc in season three, and the three of them are together, and Obi-Wan has a line, as long as the three of us stay together, nothing can go wrong. And we feel that. We feel that they will be safe together. And so the removal of Ahsoka and how that affects Anakin is the first big step in Anakin's downfall. This is about more than just following orders. It is. It is about honour. Where is the honour in marching blindly to our deaths? It is not our call. We are part of something larger. We are not independent of one another. I'm sorry. I cannot just follow orders when I know they're wrong. Especially when lives are at stake. You will if you support the system we fight for. I do support it. I do. But I am not just another number. None of us are. Fives, where are you going? To round up some pilots. It's hard to have the Clone Wars without having clones. The clones are the soldiers of the Republic. And every single one of them in this show shares the same voice actor. They are all voiced by D. Bradley Baker. Regardless of what the character is. And... For my money, I don't think D. Bradley Baker got enough praise for his work on Clone Wars. Um, his skills in this, the way he is able to make all of the clones sound unique in terms of their, their mannerisms or their cadence, just with the words that he uses, is nothing short of impressive. Um... You know, the the little bit I had prefacing this was two clone characters talking, Rex and Fives. But it's very easy to determine, even while listening, which clone is speaking. Um, despite them sharing the same voice. Now, there are several clone characters that were developed through things like the visual, visual dictionaries and novels who were named in between episode two and episode three. 
And a lot of those characters do reappear in the Clone Wars. Um, we see Commander Cody, who is the clone commander who was serving under Obi-Wan Kenobi. He reappears as a, the same role he has previously, which was the main clone commander serving under Obi-Wan Kenobi. We see um, Commander Gree, who is the clone trooper who attempts to kill Yoda during Order 66, appear for a story arc. We see Oddball, the clone pilot, who is killed in the opening moments of the space battle in Episode 3, um, appear in several engagements with Anakin, Ahsoka, and Obi-Wan. Uh, we see Citadel security guard Fox, um, who appears several times around the, um, you know, the Senate Council chambers, and um, I think he's also plays a role in the uh, the the conspiracy arc where um, Ahsoka is sentenced. But the main additions are the new clones. In fact, one of the very first episodes of Clone Wars is it's a single solitary episode. It's the very first episode of the series after the film. Is an episode called Ambush, which features Yoda and three clones. I believe there were more, but only three survived to help Yoda in the battle. And Yoda, in his wisdom and appreciation for all life, um, explores the concept of the, the three clones and how they are all alike but different. Um, you know, at one point asking them to remove their helmets and, you know, giving some insight into each of them. Um, despite one of the clones assuring him that they all have the same face, which they also they do, but they also don't. Um, the clones are shown to style their hair differently, or or wear facial tattoos, or you know other sort of markings that can differentiate them. And that's how it goes for most of the clones that we see. The main new additions are. Captain Rex, um, who is a clone trooper, clone captain, assigned to Anakin Skywalker and a member of the 501st Legion. Um, the 501st Legion is the legion that marches with Anakin to the Jedi Temple um, during Order 66. Now, Rex is... The 501st Legion, by the way, as well, is also the fan-made name. I believe it's a fan-made name um, for the the fans who dress as stormtroopers. You know how usually when you see like official events, official Star Wars events, and there'll be fans that are in Star Wars suits of armor as stormtroopers, clone troopers, what have you. They are the 501st Legion. They organize all around the world. Fun little tidbit. Um... So Rex is one of the commanding officers of the, the 501st and works quite closely with Anakin. Um, and there's a real strong camaraderie between them, the real sort of brothers-in-arms feeling. Um, 
Rex has a few interesting quirks. He has he keeps his head shaved. He has tally marks on his helmet, presumably for kills. Although due to animation restrictions, the the tally marks never change um, throughout the series, which is a bit of a shame. Um, he uses twin pistols rather than um, using a blaster rifle, and he's just quite capable. Very very capable. Um, and more than willing to do whatever is necessary, but still with the full trust of not just his men, but also the Jedi that he serves with. But we do see other clones. Rex isn't the only clone that we get focus on. Um, Two of the other main ones that we see develop, and we see them develop from rookies. Um, we get a, Clone Wars, like I said, is an anthology series. There are some episodes that are shown out of order. So we're introduced in season one to two shinies, as the clones like to call them. You know, their armor is all shiny and new because they haven't been in battle yet. Um, so two shinies known as Echo and Fives. And they go on to get considerable development. In that first episode, they team up with Cody and Rex, um, and together this unit of clones repels a droid invasion on a listening post um, that Rex and Cody were visiting at the time. And, yeah, they prove very capable soldiers, and so Rex takes them under his command as members of the 501st, um and as they progress um they become arc troopers in season three um you know special commandos essentially um fives especially becomes a, an arc trooper i can't remember if echo does i think he does but i can't remember um And we also get to see them as cadets. There's a flashback episode in season three showing them when they were in the academy as cadets and how they graduated, how their unit graduated. So it's great to see that development, see these two characters that keep recurring and keep being explored. And we see them in several different engagements over the war. And... You know, at one point, um, Echo is believed killed and lost on a mission. Um, Fives continues to work very, very closely with um, Rex and grows into a character who is very unafraid to speak his mind, as in the clip I showed before. He is, he is willing to stand up to Rex if he believes Rex is wrong and to advise him differently. Um, and it earns Fives Rex's respect as well as Anakin's respect um, we also get to see other characters some of which recur um, such as Tup and Jesse who are two other members of the 501st um, and the clone officers Waxer and Boyle um, who appear in a few episodes and uh, several others who might only get focus in one story arc, such as Dogma or Hardcase, um, you know, where they don't get a huge amount of screen time or a huge amount of development, but they play quite pivotal roles in a particular arc. 
and it's good that we get these characters that are able to be developed like this and we get there's long moments of certain episodes that just feature clones and yeah i really like it i really really like it uh and it humanizes the clones and you know that because the clones both in episode two and episode three as well as a lot of the clone wars feel very non-human i think part of the reason clone wars is able to be as violent as it is a lot of the time is because while being humanoid uh, a lot of the characters don't have their faces shown there are some some quite graphic moments of violence at some points that were edited by cartoon network like for example there's one episode where sarge ventress kills a clone and then kisses him as he dies after killing him with his with her lightsaber she like ignites her lightsaber and uses the force to pull him onto it and then kisses him as he dies and it's a very very dark for a for an uh what is ostensibly a children's animated show um you know because obviously he's helmetless at the time so you see his face in agony um whereas a lot of the time a lot of the the more violent acts that we see towards clones and later other armies like the mandalorians are usually done when they're armored or in the case of aliens that we see killed they're usually non-human um like the geonosians so and and especially in episode two and three where despite tamura morrison playing certain clones you know there were no clone armor suits ever made for episode two or three they were all cgi every single one of them is cgi um which in itself is phenomenally impressive considering how many there were, especially in the early 2000s, and especially the quality that they, they show. But um, it does leave the clones in the two films feeling very faceless, which isn't the case in Clone Wars. The clones of the Clone Wars animated series are very humanised. And it also then makes that more important when they turn on the Jedi. When they, you know, the actions that they take as the in, in episode three, as the clones evolve to, you know, into the Imperial Stormtroopers... And we see that transition through Order 66. You know, we see Cody, um, you know, the friendship and camaraderie he's built up with Obi-Wan and how he then turns on him and orders his men to shoot him. Um, I mean, I'm going to cover Order 66 a bit in a bit more detail when I get there. But it's like, it's, it's very easy to suspect that a lot of the clone commanders that we see executing Jedi there have had similar relationships with their Jedi. Um, we also get one quite nice story early on where we see a clone who has left the war which I really liked as a as a storyline he's he deserted the war um, and has now formed a, 
a family as like a, a simple homesteader on a planet. I've, and I've forgotten his name. I want to say Cutter. Um, but I get a feeling that might be wrong. Um, and, you know, Rex encounters him and Rex tries to get him to come back and to, to the battle and he won't. Um, but it's good. I like it. It's a nice touch. And one of the final arcs, you know, introduces the Bad Batch, which is a group of defective clones who lead a mission to save Echo after the Rex realises that he might still be alive due to um, Separatists using plots that Rex and Echo came up with. Uh, I've got more to say about the clones, but it's more plot related to some some of the other elements that I want to talk to so I will get there in a bit um, but yeah I think it, the development of the clones is very interesting there's also one quite nice moment where they discuss their feelings on the clone wars I believe it's Rex who does it and he's talking to again either Anakin or Ahsoka and he says how the clones have mixed feelings on the war. Because while they don't necessarily want to be soldiers, they also recognise that they were created to be soldiers. They wouldn't exist were it not for the Clone Wars. And it creates a very unique position for them. And it's only a, a brief moment. But it does echo some of the some of the tragedy behind the clones. And it's like, this war is hard on everyone, even the soldiers fighting it. You know, even though they are... They were created for it. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a nice, poignant moment quite early on. But yeah, I do like the development of the clones, and I think there's there's several clone characters that are very fun to watch develop and recur during the series. And obviously, because some of the clones become familiar faces, when you lose them, because clones do die in this quite often, in fact. Um, and when you lose a character you've cared about, especially if it's in a, a major storyline or with some intense twist you feel it you know even some of the the recurring characters like wolf who you may not see very often uh wolf is a, a clone commander who serves under plo Koon. you know you feel it when they are lost you know it is a loss <laughs> and i think humanizing the army of the clone wars is something that this show needed to do because as I said in episode 2 and 3 especially they just feel faceless so seeing how they are made into characters and recognised as people makes them a lot more interesting my dear you were brilliant thank you but perhaps we should wait till we actually win the vote before we make a victory speech. What a novel idea. Imagine that. Amidala's actually making sense for once in her life. 
Senator Bertoni, this is a private conversation. Private conversation or separatist conspiracy? How dare you? We are not pro-separatist. We want to end the war. Committing more troops to the front lines will not allow diplomacy to resume. Diplomacy failed the Republic long ago. One of the biggest and most derided elements of the prequel trilogy is the politics, the political aspect of it. Um, you know, from the opening crawl of episode one, it's clear that there is a, a political drama story going on here. And I think that rubs a lot of people along the wrong way because, you know, episode one starts because of a trade dispute, which is boring in comparison to evil empire with a rebellion that you had in the original trilogy. However, because I'm a sucker for world building and good development like that, I really enjoy the world building aspects of the political elements of the prequel trilogy. And so one of my favourite things about episode three was the deleted scenes that show Padme, Bail Organa, Mon Mothma, and several other characters building what would one day become the Rebellion. It was good to see that, and I think losing those scenes does episode three a disservice. However, I know on the old holocron, a lot of those deleted scenes were still treated as being canon. I don't know if this is still the case under the Jedi canon, under the, you know, the Disney canon. But I don't see any reason why they wouldn't be. A lot of them do not conflict with any other sources. And as I said, on the original Jedi holocron, they were kept because they were what George Lucas intended them to be. They were the recognition from Padme, Bale, and a few others that the Clone Wars were winding down, and yet Palpatine had amassed more and more political power. And we were getting to the point where would he relinquish that power as the Clone Wars came to an end. And this element is present in Clone Wars as well. And there are some very, very good political manipulations and political storylines anchored around what, on the surface, are quite boring ideas. You know, um... Senator Batoni, who is the the senator for Camino, wanting to introduce a bill to fund more clone troops, which would prolong the war, because obviously it gives her planet more money, you know, because the Kaminoans get to create a load more clones. But at the same time, that's essentially a bill that creates more soldiers, that encourages the militarization. And so is opposed. 
by Padme and Bale and their allies. Um, you know, a bill to deregulate the banks, to create more money, to put the, the banks in the control of Palpatine and have it so that the the power of the banking clan is in the hands of the chan- the chancellor but it's all done with political manipulation but away from the senate for the most part you know there are murders and plots and kidnappings and all sorts of other things and it's all being done with the goal of Palpatine trying to disrupt this growing rebellion that he's facing in the Senate. And it's it is quite clever and I really enjoy quite a lot of it. Um you know Palpatine's forces quite clearly playing at things to undermine any sort of effort to restrict his power or to bring this war to a close. And, like, at one point, Padme goes off, like I said, she goes off and speaks with Mina Monteri, who is a separatist senator. And we find out that the separatists do have their own senate, at which Count Dooku is a member and their leader. And... Padme tries to appeal to Mina Bonteri, who she's known for years as a mentor, to sue for peace. And so Dooku, in collaboration with Sidious, has Mina Bonteri assassinated. And it made to look like the Republic have done it in order to prolong the conflict and to... um, you know, to to earn reprisals from the separatists. Or, um, you know, a a political ally of Padme's, um, Onaconda Far, a Rhodian senator. Um, he is manipulated to get relief for Rhodia quite early on. Um... You know, he's manipulated by the separatists into essentially handing them, you know, prisoners, um, you know, political prisoners that have arrived on his world, including Padme, and betraying them um, because it's going to get support for his planet. And he then turns on them and, you know, the day is saved and what have you. But then that plot line comes back in a later episode where another Rodian poisons him in retaliation for his betrayal of their people. It is clever. It's very clever how, you know, they keep this focused on, you know, this is this is a... A, a cartoon uh, you know an action focused cartoon and a Star Wars cartoon but it's a family focused cartoon and because of how cartoons and animation are treated in the West this is designed for children um, and by keeping the story focused on the characters and the action scenes everything progresses a pace 
in a way that is thrilling. Um, you know, the, 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 the episodes with the banking clan involve a character, a character called Rush Clovis, who is a, a banker that, um, Padme has been friends with. And they focus this on the characters by introducing an element of jealousy between Anakin and Padme over Padme's relationship with, with Clovis. You know, Anakin becomes jealous of Clovis and unsure of his motives. And it turns out he has right to be wary of Clovis's motives um, in terms of his, his true allegiance. You know, Clovis is more aligned to the Separatists. And then Clovis returns in season six to kind of redeem himself and Anakin already doesn't trust him. But, you know, Anakin's original issue with him is due to jealousy rather than suspicion, like any actual suspicion. It's relationship suspicion rather than political suspicion. And, yeah, I think it's quite clever, and I think it does a very good job of developing these characters. And it would definitely have been improved if the deleted scenes featuring that future Rebel Alliance had been kept in Episode 3. But I still think it works. We see Bale and Padme play quite strong supporting roles in several scenes of Episode 3. We see Padme's reaction to Palpatine declaring himself Emperor. We see Bale as someone we can trust because of his close relationship with Padme. And this is even without looking at the, the elements of Palpatine's power. Like, in the episode Lightsaber Lost that I mentioned earlier, there's a bit where Ahsoka is hanging from a billboard above Coruscant. And on this billboard, Palpatine is talking about a new securities act that he's just put in place, which will allow greater surveillance on suspected enemies of the state. It's very much sort of inspired by the the American Patriot Act um, that was enacted after 2001 September 11th attacks. Um, but it feels like something that's believable in this universe and also feels like, you know, it's, it's, it's a background detail. It's not the focus of the scene or the focus of the episode, but it shows that Palpatine is amassing power, which is the element that, Padme and others are nervous about in episode three and then of course there's the the one final twist of a knife during a season five episode I believe it's season five maybe season four um where Padme does something to foil one of Palpatine's plans um well one of the separatist plans as Sidious and Masamida, the the blue guy who follows the Chancellor around, sort of says to him, you know, what are we going to do about her? And Palpatine has this very dark moment. And I think at this point, Palpatine was... This is why I think it was season five, because I think this was after 
the original actor for Palpatine had passed and had been replaced by Tim Curry, because I do remember this particular voice for Palpatine sounding a lot more sinister. But he basically implied that Padme would have to be dealt with. Um, And we see that through his manipulation of Anakin, Padme is dealt with. She is killed by... You know, Palpatine's manipulation of Anakin and what that leads Anakin to do. So, yes, very, very clever um, how they keep the political elements at play from the Clone Wars, uh, from the prequel trilogy, but focus them in new ways and in ways where these stories keep echoing and keep coming back. And also in a way that develops a lot of these background characters. You know, someone like Onaconda Far is a character in episode two. He appears, he was named in the visual dictionaries. And then he doesn't reappear in episode three. The Clone Wars explains what happens to him by having him be killed. Um, several of the other senators as well. Not just the ones who appeared in episode three, like Mon Mothma. You know you know the deleted scenes of episode three they get appearances in the clone wars here developing them before they appear in episode three it's very very well done and i think it takes those political themes and you know to an adult audience especially a lot of these political this political nuance will get picked up on especially if you do know anything about politics if you um, were aware of the sort of things that happened in American politics, like I said, during the War on Terror, and can see the echoes and the parallels of all that here. And you essentially see the Republic declining into fascism. And it's only through watching everything Palpatine does and everything that happens in these political stories that you really kind of understand why they embrace and cheer and applaud Palpatine's declaration of naming himself Emperor. Because it all makes sense when you watch this. For generations, my ancestors fought proudly as warriors against the Jedi. Now, that woman tarnishes the very name Mandalorian. Defend her, if you will. This lightsaber was stolen from your Jedi temple by my ancestors during the fall of the Old Republic. Since then, many Jedi have died upon its blade. Prepare yourself to join them. These next two sections, while not necessarily elements of the Clone Wars that enhance Episode 3, I do think are definitely worth talking about here because they do enhance Star Wars as a whole. Um, Now, this particular one is Mandalore and how the Mandalorians are developed and explored throughout the series of the Clone Wars. Mandalore is introduced in... Season 3, I believe. Um, it's led by Duchess Satine Cries. Um, 
who is a former lover, I think it's implied, of um, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Mandalore is a planet at peace. Um, however, a planet with a, a long history where Mandalorian warriors at the fall of the Old Republic fought um, the Jedi Order. Now, those those warriors are known as the adherents to the Old Ways, and there is a cult of them called the Death Watch, and they are revealed to be led by a character called Pre Vizsla. Um, Pre Vizsla is determined to return Mandalore to its its roots, um, feeling that it's lost its way, and essentially might. Mandalore becomes almost um, a microcosm for what is going on in the Star Wars galaxy as a whole, um, in that Pre Vizsla, like Palpatine, is essentially a fascist leader um, wanting to seize power, wanting to return to a way of war. Um, you know, but doing it in perhaps more of a nationalistic way rather than um, a completely greedy, megalomaniacal way such as Palpatine is. Um, you know, Pre Vizsla genuinely believes that Mandalore is weaker under Satine. But it does echo the sort of the growing darkness and the descent into fascism Um with the Republic. And this is something that um, George Lucas said he wanted to explore with the prequels. Um, so it becomes very clear why he perhaps he influenced this storyline. I will say, like I said, the, the Mandalore, the changes to Mandalore and the Mandalorians themselves have been the most controversial thing about the Clone Wars. Like, by far. As I said earlier, Karen Travis left... Lucasfilm left her association with the the Republic Commando novels because essentially the changes that Dave Filoni and George Lucas introduced to Mandalore invalidated so much of her work and Dave Filoni was aware of this when he created this story um you know he apparently went to George Lucas with copies of everything that had been written about Mandalore and the Mandalorians while proposing this storyline. And George Lucas, who, you know, while always being aware of the novels and the comic books and everything, has no qualms about getting rid of stuff or overwriting stuff himself if it interferes with his vision, was more than happy to approve Filoni's story and invalidate years, decades at this point, worth of content. Django Fett in episode two is ostensibly a Mandalorian. He's introduced as such. However, he is dismissed um, by President Olmec, who is a no not President Prime Minister Olmec, as um, a vagabond mercenary in a suit of armor, suit of stolen armor. So it does raise the question of whether Django and Boba Fett are Mandalorians in this. Um, without providing a, a, a definite answer. <sighs> the Death Watch are defeated and 
almost exiled from Mandalore, but they grow in number in their exile. They encounter Lux Bunteri and Ahsoka um, in one episode, and we are introduced to Pre Vizsla's uh, Lieutenant Bo-Katan, um, who we later find out is the sister of Satine. Um, Bo-Katan is voiced by Katie Sackhoff. Pre Vizsla is voiced by John Favreau. There's a lot of very good casting around the Mandalore characters um, in general. Um, they were all very clearly designed from the off to be characters who would recur and reappear through the latter half of this series. And, you know, the they become an important point towards the end of the Clone Wars when Mandalore is seized in sort of the later stages of Season 5. Um, Mandalore is seized, Satine is killed. Um, you know, despite her efforts to remain out of the Clone Wars. Like, Mandalore under Satine is desperately trying to stay neutral, to not pick a side between the Republic and the Separatists. Um, but it becomes clear that, you know, Pre Vizsla, at least at the start, is in the pocket of Dooku. You know, and how Count Dooku wants to use the Death Watch to gain power on Mandalore. Um, by removing Satine and bringing Mandalore into the fold. Mandalore, as I said, is is captured. Uh, it's taken by the Death Watch, who by this point have a new leader, not Pre Vizsla. Um, and Satine is killed. But the new leader also kills Pre Vizsla. And Bogtan and several others flee, while several others, led by Gar Saxon, remain loyal to the new leader. And this all then culminates in the final four episodes of The Clone Wars, which, like I said to me, are presumably the very reason this, this season seven even exists which is the, a storyline that is best described as the Siege of Mandalore, where Ahsoka Tano, exiled from the Jedi Order, recruited by Bo-Katan, leads Captain Rex and a unit of clone commandos, a, a unit of clones under her command, well, under Rex's command, technically, because she's not anymore a, a member of the Grand Army. Um to Mandalore to help Bo-Katan's loyal Mandalorians reclaim the planet and bring the, the new Lord of the Death Watch to justice. And it is fantastic. Um, it, it is great. Um, you know, the visuals are incredible these final episodes are developed so well um and they are a culmination of the biggest longest running thread within plot thread within the clone wars series um and they are done so well like ray park comes back to do motion capture um for these final four episodes their production budget is increased they use more music from 
um, episode three, and they take place at the same time as episode three. Like you could watch these four final four episodes with episode three, and it would make one long cohesive four hour film. And in fact, I encourage you to do so. There are certain points where you can just sort of pause episode three and go back to one of these episodes. Um, and I suppose if it wasn't for Mandalore and the situation on Mandalore, Anakin wouldn't lose his two closest allies in the final moments of the war, which would it would be what allows Palpatine to really get his hooks into Anakin. Because the minute Anakin finds Ahsoka again, she's taken away from him. And she takes Rex with her. And it's very, very well done. So yeah, the Mandalore arc is incredible. And if you've seen no other episodes of Clone Wars ever, you at least owe it to yourself to watch those final four. But the final four episodes also hinge on a, the return of another character um, who is a bit more of a spoiler, and I have briefly mentioned earlier, and that's Darth Maul. Jedi, I have been waiting for you. I'm not sure I've made your acquaintance. I am surprised you could have forgotten me so easily after I killed your master and you left me for dead on Naboo. It is you. You may have forgotten me, but I will never forget you. You cannot imagine the depths I would go to to stay alive, fueled by my singular hatred for you. That may be so, but I defeated you before, and I can defeat you again. <laughs> Don't be so certain. In season four of The Clone Wars, um, Count Dooku is essentially ordered by Darth Sidious, uh, Palpatine, to remove his Jedi disciple, his dark Jedi disciple, Asajj Ventress. Um, and Dooku turns on her and tries to have her executed. Ventress goes on the run and returns to her home planet of Dathomir. Um, while on Dathomir, um, a, for a dark force user called Mother Talzin um you know, a, a, a strong presence in the dark side, um, sort of helps her create a new Dathomiri male to act as her weapon against Dooku. Um, the Dathomiri that she selects becomes is transformed through dark side magic into the character of Savage Opress. Um, and she, Savage is presented by Mother Talzin to Dooku as his new, um, his new student, his new dark side disciple. But then Asajj and Savage unsuccessfully try to assassinate Dooku. Um, in doing so, Asajj goes off and becomes a bounty hunter and gets a, a nice little story arc there. 
Um, meanwhile, Savage is given the mission by uh, Mother Talzin of finding his brother, Darth Maul, who was believed dead um, over a decade prior during the Battle of Naboo in Episode 1. He doesn't find Darth Maul until the end of Season 4, the final episode, which is called Brothers, I believe. But he brings Darth Maul back to Mother Talzin, and Mother Talzin heals Darth Maul. They give him new uh, bionic legs to make up for the ones he's lost. When they originally find him, he's almost feral and is riding on a spider body, um like a living spider that he sort of subsumed to his will. Very impressive, very terrifying. Um, and then Darth Maul and Savage Press decide to get revenge on not just Dooku, but the Jedi as well, specifically Obi-Wan Kenobi, who has also encountered Savage and humbled him several times in battle. Maul becomes a main antagonist throughout season five. Um, you know, he gets quite a lot of development in the early half and then some more towards the end. Season five is split very, very definitely into several quite long story arcs. Um, and Maul is, is good. Um... He is mainly concerned about seeking revenge on Obi-Wan Kenobi, but his return becomes so much more important when he becomes involved in the Mandalore plotline. He encounters the Death Watch. The Death Watch um, save the lives of him and Savage, who are drifting in space after their encounter with Asajj and Obi-Wan in a previous episode. And Darth Maul it proves himself to be quite a canny manipulator by bringing together a lot of underworld groups, um, such as the Black Sun, who previously appeared in the novel series, well, the original novel and multimedia project Star Wars Shadows of the Empire, um, the Pike Syndicate, who would go on to reappear in Solo, and the Hutt Cartel, as well as several other different underworld forces. And they all come together under Darth Maul's leadership. Um, you know, they encounter the Jedi. Um, Savage is killed. Um, but... With the Death Watch and his criminal cartels, Darth Maul is able to take control of Mandalore. And the influence he's exerting causes him to fight with Pre Vizsla, where he executes Pre Vizsla. Um, so yeah, Darth Maul becomes the, the shadow ruler of Mandalore. He is briefly beaten um, by Darth Sidious. Darth Sidious turns up on Mandalore and fights both him and Savage, kills Savage, and captures Darth Maul. And unfortunately, this is where the the cancellation of Clone Wars actually becomes a detriment 
because four of the unproduced episodes became a comic series called Darth Maul, Son of Dathomir, uh, where they explore how Maul escapes from Palpatine, well, Darth Sidious, um, his interactions with Dooku, and how he sort of is saved by the Death Watch, um, led by Gar Saxon, and returns to Mandalore to continue to rule there. Um, and having that bit missing from the main episodes is a shame, but the comic series is is freely available. Um, you know, you can find it as a graphic novel. You can find it on Marvel Unlimited. So it's very easy to find if you do want to read it. I do recommend reading it. It's a very quick read, um, but it has all the the action elements that you would expect from a Clone Wars story. Maul is then... Um, opposed by Bo-Katan, and Bo-Katan hires... Ahsoka to come back to Mandalore to fight him and defeat him. Um, and that is the, you know, Darth Maul becomes the big threat that they have to capture. And in those final four episodes um, that tie into episode three, Darth Maul sort of realises what's about to happen. And he sees a vision of Skywalker's fall. Um, and sees it due to, like, perceiving it in the Force. And he wants to help Skywalker, presumably for his own ends. But he wants also to undermine Sidious. He is vengeful against his former master. And it's a nice touch. Um, him and Ahsoka also form an uneasy truce um, during a couple of these final episodes when they both find themselves under attack by clones undergoing uh, during Order 66. And Darth Maul shows the power at his command when he's able to essentially destroy a Star Destroyer while it's in flight. Um... And, and bring it down for a crash landing. But I think one of the most important things that Darth Maul does and how it impacts after episode three um, in terms of what it does for the original trilogy is he brings together the underworld. There is an underworld in the prequel trilogies, but it is nowhere near as dramatic as it is in the original trilogy. The Hutt cartel just has a lot more control, or a lot more visible control, in the prequel trilogy. And even by the time of the sequel trilogy, there's still a really active criminal element and I think you can pin a lot of that on Darth Maul's creation of his syndicate um, and what that means going forward. So, yeah, I do think it's a, a nice idea. But, yeah, bringing back Darth Maul and 
making him incredible for this. And as I said, Ray Park comes back to do motion capture for those final four episodes for his lightsaber fight against uh, Ahsoka. He's voiced by Sam Witwer, who appears earlier on in the Clone Wars series as the son on the planet of Mortis, which I'll cover in more detail later on. It's just very, very, very well done. <laughs> um, I was a big fan of of the idea of bringing Darth Maul back. I was dubious about it when they first announced it, but watching those episodes, yeah, I'm a definite fan of that idea because it it improves the Clone Wars. It gives them a good antagonist to fight against, and most importantly for you know episode three it gives a reason to separate Anakin from his... from his essential people, the people that he needs. You know, Ahsoka even calls him out on it, that he's... he's uh, well, that her and... An that Anakin and Obi-Wan are leaving because the Chancellor needs them, not that the Jedi needs them, not that the people need them, but the Chancellor needs them. And because of that, they can't stop Darth Maul, who is a definite threat. Yeah, it's very clever. Very, very clever. And especially because the Clone Wars was already hampered by the fact that General Grievous and Anakin could never encounter each other. Because canonically, their first appearance is at the start of Episode 3, where they first meet face-to-face -face, um, due to their dialogue. You know, even to the point that Grievous can't have seen Anakin on a hollow because he thinks he'd be older. Um, so, yeah, the introduction of Maul and Opress is essentially done to give them more opponents to fight. But it's done so well, and Maul has some standout moments in the show. The fight with Sidious at the end of Season 5 especially is incredible. Um, you know, it's a good look at the threat that Darth Sidious poses before we get that reveal in episode three um, where he fights Mace Windu and the other Jedi Masters. So yeah, very impressive. And I'm glad Darth Maul returned. And, and Darth Maul's inclusion is an example of one that doesn't just make episode three better, it makes the whole prequel trilogy better. So bonus for that. Will we ever get out of here? The city is fallen. Prince is lost. Prince Lee Cha? Are you a prisoner here as well? I am here, but not as a prisoner. I've come with a message. As your future king, I have not lost hope. The time is coming when you will be free again. I will not fail you. We want to believe, but how can this be possible? The Clone Wars covers several years of in-universe time um, for the Star Wars franchise. But obviously, the Star Wars galaxy is much more all-encompassing than, say, for example, the galaxy in Star Trek. Um, you know, in Star Trek, we have the galaxy divided into quadrants. But for the most part it takes place in some very small sectors of space. Star Wars takes place literally across the whole galaxy. Um, and many planets in Star Wars have been established with 
years, if not decades, of lore. Um, for example, the planet of Ryloth, which is the home world of the Twi'lek race, um, or Onderon, or Mandalore, or Moncala, which is the, the home planet of both the Mon Calamari and the Quarren. Um, Rhodia, the home of the, um, the Rhodians, and several, several others. As a result, the Clone Wars visits a lot of these planets. And for some of them, we only get a story arc that might encompass three, maybe four episodes um, detailing the, the battles on that planet. But for others, we might get several episodes sporadically placed across the entire series. Um showing the battles there, such as the planet of Christo uh, Christophsis, which appears in the original Clone Wars film, and is then returned to several times, or the planet of Dathomir, the homeworld of uh, Mother Talzin and the Night Sisters, um, which again reappears multiple times. It is in several of these story arcs where we get some... Some of the more interesting war stories um, in this, where we see the people on these planets um, fighting back. Um, this comes, first of all, with the introduction of Cham San Sindula, who is a Twi'lek um, leading a rebellion against the separatist occupation of his world. Um he is a political rival to Senator Ornfree Tarr, who is the representative of his planet in the Senate, a uh, rather obese Twi'lek. Meanwhile, um, Sindula and a lot of his allies are living kind of hand-to-mouth. Um, they get the help from Mace Windu, Anakin, Obi-Wan, Ahsoka, and others to kind of help liberate their worlds. But it's... a uh, quite an intense battle and involves a little bit of political wrangling as uh, Ornfri Tar and Sindula try and um, put aside their differences and work for the the betterment of their people despite their obvious disagreements. Um, Onderon is a planet that gets some significant development. Um, as I said, we were first introduced to, to Mina and Lux Bonteri in a previous episode. They're Onderon as a planet that is declared for the Separatists, um, you know, with Mina Bonteri representing them. And Dooku has her eliminated. This then leads Lux Bonteri to try and form a resistance against the Separatist army that is placed there, um, who, and, you know, the king who has control of the planet. Um, and this is where we get the introduction of of Stila and Saw Guerrera, um, two you know brother and sister duo who help found the rebellion on this planet. And Anakin, Obi Wan, and Ahsoka come to train them, but uh, along with Rex. Um, but they do say we can't fight your war for you. Um, you know, if the Republic is shown to be you know, if the Republic and the Jedi are shown to be backing this resistance, then it will create a new front in the war. But if it's a rebellion against the Separatists from the people of the planet, um, 
you know, it keeps the Republic out of the fighting, keeps it free from reprisals, um, which in itself is a political move and quite a, a daring one and one that doesn't sit well with Saw Gerrera. Saw Gerrera is um, the character who goes on to be played by Forrest Whitaker in Star Wars Rogue One. Um, he reappears throughout several projects um, after the Clone Wars, including Star Wars Rebels as well, and I believe in The Bad Batch. Um, you know, goes on to be one of the founding members of the, the Rebel Alliance. Sorry, excuse my phone there. The Mon Calarach is the episode I used the quote for. Um, the Mon Calarach is, is actually one of my favourites in terms of how interconnected it makes the Star Wars universe feel. Um, Mon Cala, the the king, has been killed. Um, and his son, Prince Lee Char, who is very young, um, has sort of been thrust into the spotlight. And as I said, there are two sentient races on this planet, the squid-like Quarren and the fish-like Mon Calamari. Um, the Mon Calamari are Admiral Akbar's people. And in fact, Akbar himself does appear in this story arc as a captain um, of the, the standing army of Mon Cala. Um, there is a Quarren senator who is part of the Separatist armies uh, in episode two and episode three. He doesn't appear in this story arc. Um, there was was a plan to return to Mon Cala in a later series, but obviously those episodes went undeveloped when the series was cancelled. Um, the... Padme and Anakin have come to sort of oversee the, the, the power struggle regarding Lee Char's ascension to the throne, um, as well as a shark-like um, observer who has been brought in by the Quarren from the Separatist armies by the name of Riff Tamsin. Um, it, we later learn that obviously Tamsin is the one responsible for murdering Lee Char's father, the king, and creating this whole situation in the first place, all in a separatist power play to take the planet. Um, Tamsin is quite terrifying and, and completely at his element in the underwater environment, whereas obviously the the Jedi aren't. Anakin and Ahsoka are, are very underprepared. The, uh, Kit Fisto is much more at home in the, the seas, Um but uh, Anakin, Padme, and Ahsoka are not. Um, but as part of this story arc, um, you know, we see this this quite brutal battle in the main city between the Quarren army and the Mon Calamari. A lot of people end up dead. And, you know, we see Riff Tamsin literally, like, eating people, uh, swimming through them and tearing them to shreds in the same way that a shark would um which is yeah it's, it's it's good stuff for a kid's show um the jedi realize that they have to send help uh after they're contacted by kit fisto and they have no clones available so they realize they need a standing arm you know a planet a water planet that has a standing army and they choose to use the gungans and so Jar Jar Binks and leads a Gungan army to come to the rescue of the Mon Calamari people. And 
yeah, it's it's one of my favourite story arcs, just the weaving everything together and the, the mix of characters it includes, uh, you know, between uh, Kit Fisto, Anakin, Ahsoka, Padme, um, Jar Jar and Akbar. It's, yes, it's very well done. Um, and I wish we'd got more exploration of um, Mon Cala in later seasons. And... Yeah, it's kind of a shame that we didn't. Um, you know, we get... One of the other planets where we get to see it several times is Toydaria. In fact, like the first main episode that I mentioned, Ambush, um, both the Separatists and Yoda are trying to court uh, King Katunko of Toydaria. Uh, Todaria is the homeworld of Watto's people from episode one. Um, and, you know, um, he sets a challenge between Asajj Ventress and Yoda, and Yoda wins because Asajj Ventress acts dishonorably. And so, um, you know, he pledges loyalty to the Republic. Um, which, of course, this this early victory for the Republic, um, Dooku is very tempted to undermine throughout the entire series. So when he takes on Savage Opress as his new apprentice, he sends Savage to capture Katunko, but Savage kills him. Um, you know, so just seeing elements like that come back, um and return throughout the the series is is great stuff um you know it's not uncommon that we'll hear battles reoccurring on new pla on planets that we've we've seen explored before <sighs> you know as the series go on we see we see people enslaved. We see heroes killed. Not just local heroes on the planets, but also, um, you know, also Jedi killed saving these planets or saving these people. Um, you know, the political machinations from planets that tried to stay safe, uh, you know, try to stay out of the fighting. You know, we get a feeling by the end of the show that the Jedi are desperate for the war to end because it's not protecting the people. And I think a lot of that does help drive a lot of episode three. The Jedi are feeling worn down by the Clone Wars. And this is becoming apparent by the time we get to episode three, I think. So it's a great addition um, for the Clone Wars series to to take the time to explore it to explore these planets and you know and plus they're all fantastic visually there are some amazing designs here at play um, loads of great great moments very visual landscapes very Star Wars it's fantastic and a lot of this is is benefited by the animation medium. Although I, d I did notice there is a, a recurring trend of having, um, you know, the set piece for this particular planet always taking place on a plateau. You know, some large plateau 
where the the clone gunships will fly down and land um i don't know if that's a restriction of the animation or just a star wars visual that the producers seem to quite like um one of the more interesting planets that works as a battlefield is geonosis um which is the where the first battle of the clone wars takes place at the end of episode two um which actually has like zombie brain worms so you end up with zombie bugs fighting the clones that's a a very interesting story arc a lot of fun um also has some great moments between um ahsoka and barris which makes uh barris's betrayal in season five much more interesting so yeah i'd recommend that arc as well um but pretty much any arc that involves um you know a focus on a particular planet you're usually going to get some good development of the people on that planet or you know an engaging story as to why this planet is important for the overall war effort One of the major recurring themes of the Clone Wars series is, especially in its later seasons, is the effect that the Clone Wars are having upon the Jedi. Now, the Jedi Order is originally envisioned by George Lucas. The Jedi are a group of essentially warrior monks. They are a combination almost of a Shaolin and a Samurai you know exploring the you know the peaceful nature and the you know what you can do for yourself to to better yourself and what you can do for others of a shaolin and being able to resort to incredible violence if necessary but never pursuing it as a first course you know they have a code of honor you know, things matter to them. In the Clone Wars, however, the Jedi have been turned into soldiers. You know, Jedi Masters and Jedi Knights are generals. Jedi Padawans are commanders 
as uh, pointed out quite early on in the series when uh, Commander Tano, um, Ahsoka, makes a comment to Rex that technically, because he's a captain, she outranks him. You know, it's... The Jedi are now responsible as part of the Grand Army of the Republic for making and pursuing a war. And that has an effect upon them. You know, the Separatists as well, and the Separatists are more sympathetic as well in Clone Wars than perhaps they were in Episode 2 and 3. When they're introduced in Episode 2, it's Dooku leading the Trade Federation, the Techno Union, the Banking Clan, the, the Corporate Guild. You know, it's a group of corporations and money makers trying to break away from the government you know these aren't people that are sympathetic clone wars makes them sympathetic clone wars introduces um you know people have people like i've already mentioned like mina monteri um you know separatist political leaders who aren't you know corporate figureheads and their inclusion makes the separatists more sympathetic and makes you able, makes the Jedi able in some cases to sympathise with their position, um, as seen with Ahsoka and Lux. Um, even with the, the senators, senators like Padme are able to understand entirely where the separatists are coming from in some respects and want to try and find a common ground and pursue peace. You know, there's also other senators um, that want to keep their systems out of the war as best they can. You know, people like Satine, who want to keep their, their worlds out of the fighting as best as they can. But the Jedi are now turned from peacekeepers. They're not able to pursue this peace. They are now soldiers. They are generals. They are responsible for pursuing this war. I apologise for the noise in the background. It is too hot here in the UK right now to have my windows closed and prevent noise. Um, and obviously them being soldiers has an effect upon them. Um the most prominent examples are with two major characters one of which i've already discussed which is barisophi and how she causes the the bombing in the jedi temple how she is realizing you know she has a a, a verbal battle with anakin as they fight where she says that the the jedi are wrong the war is wrong but one of the more prominent examples of a fallen Jedi comes in season four, and that is Pong Krell. Pong Krell, I forget the name of his race. Um, for anyone who's seen episode two, um, the cook, Dexter, with the four arms that Obi-Wan goes to see in, on Coruscant, he's one of that race. 
and he is a Jedi general who takes control of the 501st in a very dangerous battlefield uh, of Umbara. Um, and Rex and Fives and several of the other members of the 501st really start to chafe under his leadership, whereas some of the other clones, such as Dogma, see that he is their general and offer him blind loyalty. And Krell manipulates a lot of clones into fighting and killing each other. He manipulates them into almost suicidal engagements where they take heavy losses. And we learn that it is because Krell has fallen to the dark side as a result of pursuing this war, pursuing the war against the, uh, the Separatists. And in fact, the, the, the Krell story arc is one of the best examples of the storytelling that the Clone Wars has to offer. Um, in fact, I've used two quotes from that story arc in this episode alone, the the conversation that I had earlier between Rex and Fives and the one I've just used. Krell is, is fantastic and a very terrifying villain um, in just his sheer callous nature. And how you can sense there's something off about him. But also, this is a Jedi known for not taking the lives of his clones seriously. You know, he is... more ruthless in his approach anyway. And how that has led him to this darker path. Um... We see this happen with other Jedi as well. Um, you know, we see the way that the the Jedi Council turns on Ahsoka when the evidence points towards her for the conspiracy and how willing they are to exile her and how that shows that they're being used. You know, how, um, as Ahsoka learns from the Martez sisters, how the Jedi that met with them after their parents killed offered such a hollow answer to them um, that the force will be with them and how those words ring hollow um, to some to the people in this galaxy that are losing so much due to this war and then of course as the series progresses um, to, into season five and six, the um, you know they learn how Dooku manipulated the war, um, and they decide to to do something about it. They decide to um, plot his assassination using Quinlan Voss. This is the, the novel Dark Disciple based on the the two unproduced story arcs. And they suggest sending Quinlan Voss and getting him to, you know, form a camaraderie with Asajj Ventress, who has 
long been out from under Dooku's control, but is still definitely not on the side of the angels. You know, she is not on the light side of the force by any means. You know, she's a bounty hunter at this point. Um, but, the you know, the Jedi plot Dooku's assassination and send Quinlan to team with Asajj Ventress to carry it out. And in doing so, they, you know, this leads Quinlan down a very dark path. He gets captured and manipulated by Dooku and, you know, almost turned to the dark side himself when he learns of the, you know, the death of his master and how um, Dooku had Asajj Ventress kill her, uh, kill him, sorry, you know, kill, kill his master Thom. It's it's very interesting seeing the lengths that the Jedi will start to go to by the end of this series, um, you know, by the end of this Clone Wars project. And in fact, um, Yoda's response to this is very interesting. Yoda gets a, an arc, and it's, it's about three, four episodes, um, towards the end of season six, where he leaves the Jedi Temple in such sort of a quest for answers, and he ends up going to the Sith homeworld um, before finally arriving on Dagobah, where he ends up in the original trilogy, and at the end of episode three. And he is greeted by the Force Ghost of Qui Gon Jinn. Now. Qui-Gon at this point can't manifest himself as a force ghost, but he is able to talk to Yoda. So we get Liam Neeson's amazing voice coming back as Qui-Gon and interacting with Yoda, where Yoda sees the future. Yoda sees everything that is going to happen. Not in detail, but we see Order 66. We see um, Darth Vader through Yoda's vision. And this obviously starts Yoda on his path that is then explored throughout episode three and into the original trilogy, where the Jedi have to change. Things have to be different. And yes, it's it's backwards um explanation you know it's it's retroactive continuity it's a retcon by saying that this is how this happened but the revelation that yoda makes in episode three to obi-wan that he's been discussing things with qui-gon comes out of nowhere without this episode without this this story arc and so that makes one of the more jarring whoa moments in episode three makes sense and i do enjoy that you have no business left with pikes tyrannus tyrannus you are the man called tyrannus i told you everything you needed to know on geonosis all those years ago kenobi you should have joined me as i thought yes understood he saw the future why he helped me. You 
die. Of course, the central villain of... Well, essentially of the entire Star Wars saga at this point is Darth Sidious. And episode three, I think, is the film that best shows that. Um, Darth Sidious takes a, a relatively... Well, he's relatively sidelined throughout the Clone Wars because in a similar way to the prequels, he's separated into his dual personas, the the public face of Chancellor Palpatine and the hidden face of Darth Sidious. Now, Darth Sidious does get a lot more to do as a Sith Lord. And obviously, you come into the Clone Wars knowing that Sidious is Palpatine. Um you know, in a similar way to how a lot of us went into the prequels. But his manipulations are forefront of a lot of this. And there, like, as I said earlier, there are a couple of scenes where the veneer does slip, where we see him with his um, attendant, Masamida, where he talks about, you know, removing Padme as an obstacle. Um you know, how he tries to manipulate planets and events using the people at his command. You know, um, causing the elimination of, of Mina Bonteri, causing reply, you know, um, reprisals against whole worlds on the part of the, um, the separatist armies we see his control of dooku you know dooku is nothing more than sidious's puppet and you know this is something that's exemplified by episode three um and we realize you know in the final battle before you know as palpatine orders anakin to kill dooku just how we see that look on on Count Dooku's face, performed excellently by Christopher Lee, that that moment of realisation when he realises just how much he has been played. And it is fantastic. I, I really like that scene. Um, you know, that is exemplified in this. Dooku is nothing more than Sidious's right hand. Um, he's a puppet. He has no power of his own every decision he makes comes from palpatine you know we see this when he is ordered by palpatine to cut asajj ventress loose and how that leads him to going back to mother talzin um to get savage opress and how you know how Asajj and Savage's um, manipulations and their attack on Dooku then lead to Sidious deciding to remove Mother Talzin and the Night Sisters, leading to a massacre on Dathomir, where all of the Night Sisters are eliminated except for, um, you know, Asajj Ventress, who is able to escape, and Talzin herself, although she is then 
forced to basically give up her physical form to restore Darth Maul. And then in the comic series, Son of Dathomir is finally destroyed, trying to save Darth Maul from Sidious. You know, Sidious gradually takes down all threats to his power throughout this series. Mother Talzin is a threat. He eliminates her. The Jedi are a threat. You know, he weakens them. Um, you know, he even towards the final acts, you know, final arcs of this series, um, we see that the, the military presence is taking greater control of the Grand Army, you know, removing power from the Jedi. Was, as we see characters like Tarkin come into the forefront. Um, you know, Admiral Tarkin is obviously quite trusted by Palpatine based on the scenes that we get between them. And then, of course, you know, Tarkin himself reappears in Episode 3 where he's been put in charge of the Death Star project by Darth Vader and Palpatine as well. Sidious is either removing any threats to his power or making efforts to deal with them. And while also taking more and more power as the Chancellor which, as I said in the, when we're talking about the political machinations, is an ongoing part of this whole story. You know, taking control of the banks, taking emergency security powers. It's so clever. And yes, like I said, a lot of it is, is retcon. It is stuff added in to make the film better. But it does make that film better. You know, you watch episode three. Episode three for me is the best look at Sidious. Sidious is essentially the main villain of the Star Wars saga. I'm not very happy about the whole idea of bringing him back in Rise of Skywalker. I think that was a travesty that makes the original film trilogies worse. Both Return of the, both the original trilogy and the prequel trilogy, as well as the sequel trilogy. It makes the whole series worse. But but I will probably do a podcast on that one day. But what it does do in episode three is we, for the first real time, I mean, we've had elements of it. You have elements of it in episode one where he manipulates Padme into um, removing Valorum as High Chancellor. We see elements of it in episode two, um, you know, where he drops the hint that then leads to Jar Jar calling for the army. You know, it's very clever. He's a very, very clever man. Um, but episode three is, for me, the high point of all of this. As we see him really try to seize power from, you know, and, and control over Anakin and how this culminates in his reveal as the Emperor. And it's very well done. And I think this whole series shows just how much control Sidious and Palpatine already have. You know, we see him fight Darth Maul when Darth Maul gains power on Mandalore. Uh, 
and kill Savage Opress. We see him order Grievous and Dooku to take down Talzin. You know, he gradually eliminates all of his enemies, all of the threats to his power, so that when he takes over as Empire as Emperor, he will be as unopposed as possible. And I think it's done so well. And it was already, for me, one of the strongest points of Episode 3. So it's one of the more subtle elements in The Clone Wars. But that background of it in The Clone Wars definitely makes it far superior. Plus, of course, there's the amazing reveal um, to the Jedi when they learn about Dooku being Tyrannus and how, you know, the whole clone wars themselves the formation of the grand army everything how it all ties back to dooku and by extension sidious and how they realize that this sith lord this elusive sith lord that they've been hunting has been behind everything from the very beginning and that's a very very good late game reveal in the clone wars it doesn't come until season six but when it comes oh beautiful Absolutely beautiful. I just need you to listen to me. Please. I'm not really sure we have any other choice. I was framed because I know the truth. The truth about a plot. A massive deception. By who? Well, there's a sinister plot in the works against the Jedi. I have proof of it. I can prove that everything that I know is true beyond the shadow of a doubt. Show me the evidence. The evidence is in here. It's, it's in here. It's in all of us. Every clone. What is it? Organic chips built into our genetic code to make us do whatever someone wants. Even kill the Jedi. It's all in here. Just get you some help first, then we can review everything. We'll be okay for we'll sort this out. Uh, you don't believe me! Order 66 is another high point of episode 3. It's one of the most powerful sequences in the whole film, if not in the entire Star Wars saga. Um, I think it is so well done. And I think the whole story of Order 66 is one of the reasons why I keep coming back to Episode 3 as my favourite. And it's clearly something that Dave Filoni is a fan of, how many times he's revisited the tragedy of that moment in shows such as The Mandalorian, The Bad Batch, even Kenobi. You know, this is... Order 66 is a rich well to tap on. Um... You know, so many things have gone back to it. Um, you know, Fallen Jedi, the, the video game, you know, its opening takes place around the same time as Order 66. It's that powerful and that influential a moment. As a result of being a surprise reveal in Episode 3, it doesn't feature much of the Clone Wars. It only features in two major story arcs. The final story arc of the entire show, where in the last two episodes, 
Rex and the other members of the 501st that are assigned to Ahsoka fall victim to the Order of Order 66 and turn on Ahsoka and Darth Maul, which in itself is brilliant and heart-wrenching at times, seeing Rex level his guns at Ahsoka, seeing uh, Rex, once he's saved by Ahsoka um, and freed of the influence of the control chip, um, having to turn on his brothers, having to turn on clones that we come to love, such as Jesse, and seeing them be fought off and die as a result of Order 66. But the main arc that deals with Order 66 comes earlier, and it involves Fives and Tup. Um, Tup is another clone, member of the 501st, that we've seen a few times. During a battle um, in an orbital space station, I believe, uh, a very large one, um, where Anakin and the 501st are supporting um, the two Jedi Knights, Tipley and Tiplar, twins. In the middle of the battle, Tup shoots dead one of the Jedi, one of the Jedi twins. I believe it's Tipley, might be Tiplar, can't remember. Shoots her dead. And then, after being restrained by his fellow clones... Um, is studied and examined and we reveal that well Tup is raving repeating the phrase good soldiers follow orders over and over again in a manic way before saying kill the Jedi and lunging at the other sister as well as Anakin Fives and the others try to investigate. They take Tup to Camino, where he is examined by Camino and Doctor, um, who contacts Dooku, who we now know by this point in the series is the, well, as we knew from episode two, um, is the person responsible for organising the clones. I think the actual reveal of Dooku as Tyrannus comes a bit later on. And Tup is killed by the Camino and Doctor because he's lost control. We find out that there is organic control chips implanted in the clones as part of their genetic tinkering to turn them into an army. I apologise for my phone going off then when I was uh, getting quite serious. Fives Fives won't accept Tup's death and investigates and learns about these organic control chips. Tup had a fault with his, almost like a, a tumour, a cancer. And the Kaminoans try to portray that as why Tup malfunctioned in the way he did. Such a callous way of putting it. Fives investigates and with the help of a medical droid has his own control chip removed forcibly 
and he is absolutely fine. And with both control chips in hand, he tries to get the evidence to Rex and Anakin. And we are rooting for him. We know Fives won't be successful. If you've seen episode three, you know he won't be successful. But you are rooting for him every step of the way. But Palpatine learns about it from Dooku, from Asidious. I think one of the only times in the series where Palpatine is acknowledged as Darth Sidious. And Palpatine sends the uh, council guard, led by Fox, to eliminate Fives. Not to bring him in, to eliminate him. And that's exactly what happens. Fives was on the cusp of averting the entire tragedy of Order 66. But Palpatine, Darth Sidious, prevented it. And the Jedi remained none the wiser. We later learn in the final episodes that Rex um, questioned what had happened to Fives and Tup and had heard enough from Fives that he was suspicious and put it into an official report. And it's using that official report and the acknowledgement of what happened to Fives that um, Ahsoka is able to give Rex his own mind back in the final arc. And that's that's brilliant. It's lovely to see, and it's nice to see Rex not be responsible for killing a Jedi after having grown to like him so much. Several of the Jedi even get warnings in the Force about Order 66, about everything that will happen. As I said earlier, most obviously Yoda. But it does nothing. These warnings are, are misinterpreted by the people who see them. And Order 66 happens. And as I said, it's one of my favourite moments in the entire saga, and I think it's one of the best moments in the entire saga. And... Yeah, I remember the first time I see it, saw it in the cinema. I remember every time I've seen it since. It is one of those scenes from pop culture that is just etched in my brain from the first time I saw it and the emotions, the raw emotion that I felt watching that scene for the first time. And so even though I know Clone Wars couldn't do anything to change Order 66, seeing... Fives' quest to almost unravel it and how what Fives did helps Ahsoka to save Rex is great. And I really enjoy it. And I really like that the, the final few episodes take place at the same time as Order 66 so that they can confront that aspect of the storyline. <sighs> So yeah, I'm I'm glad Order sixty six is here and and is represented in the Clone Wars as well. And I think the way they did it was very very well done. I have a gift for you. I've had enough of your trickery, but you will like this one. I promise. What if I could show you the future?
such terrible things. And finally, we come to the most integral part of both episode three and the Clone Wars, which is Anakin Skywalker. The tragedy of Anakin and his fall, knowing that no matter what else will happen, he is destined to fall, to become Darth Vader, um, to become one of the greatest evils that the galaxy has ever known, is something that underlines a lot of the Clone Wars. The Clone Wars takes Anakin from Episode 2 being, um, you know, a Jedi Padawan who is prone to anger, struggling with attachment, you know, who who massacred, um, you know, touched the dark side by massacring a, a whole family of Tusken Raiders, a whole family of Sam people, um, because they killed his mother. Um, he's turned from that into a warrior in very short order. You know, he has to fight in the Clone Wars. And, you know, as a newly minted Jedi Knight underneath um, Obi-Wan Kenobi, he fights on the forefront of the Clone Wars. You know, and he is shown to be you know, a brave and cunning warrior. Everything that we get told about Anakin in the Clone Wars from Obi-Wan in Star Wars A New Hope, we see built up as Anakin in the Clone Wars. You know, we see him being Obi-Wan's friend. We see him being a warrior. We see him being... You know, a brave Jedi Knight. But of course, episode three, as well as exploring Anakin's fall, also explores the the whole legend of the Chosen One, where the Jedi actually start to realise in episode three that maybe they misunderstood the prophecy of the Chosen One, and that that's part of what leads to their downfall. And leads to Anakin's fall. You know, his manipulation by Sidious into becoming Darth Vader. And this is even hinted a couple of times throughout the Clone Wars. Obviously, there was the the story arc I mentioned earlier with Yoda, um, where he sees his own vision of the future. But perhaps one of the most important ones is a story arc in season three called the Mortis arc. Um, the Jedi pick up an ancient distress signal, like 2,000 years old ancient, um, and they fly out to the area of space where they picked it up. Anakin, Obi-Wan and Ahsoka in a shuttle um, head towards the signal and end up finding themselves on a planet called Mortis, um, you know, separated from the clones who came with them. Mortis is a brilliantly designed, almost living world that reacts to the changes of the people on it. 
and it is inhabited by three powerful beings. And these beings are the father, the son, and the daughter. Now, these three beings, the ones as they are called, are interpreted by many, many people um, to represent aspects of the Force. Um, and I should uh, mention that this particular arc, the Mortis arc, was one that was actually originated by George Lucas. You know, this was a story arc that George Lucas wanted to tell. This wasn't the case of Dave Filoni coming to him with an idea. This was George Lucas coming to Filoni with an idea. So this is clearly an important part of the story. The father has summoned Anakin here, and by extension, Obi-Wan and Ahsoka, because he knows that Anakin is the chosen one, and that Mortis, the planet of Mortis, is almost like a nexus for the cosmic force. And so Anakin will need to bring balance to his children, the son and the daughter. The daughter is shown as somewhat passive to her father's wishes, trying to find balance and the health of things. Um, the son is shown as being quite reckless and almost arrogant. And you can read them as avatars of the light and dark side. Um, but one theory I quite like is that they don't represent the aspects of the light and dark side themselves, but rather the aspects of different force users with the father representing the will of the force itself. And the daughter represents the, you know, the people who would try and work in harmony with the force to protect it. Um, not just the Jedi, but many other characters as well who would try and, you know, work within the force. Um, you know, and work with it rather than using it. Whereas the son seems to embody not just the Sith, but anyone who would sort of use the Force to their own ends. And throughout this story arc, the, the son in rebellion against the daughter... Uh, well, in rebellion against his father, sorry... Um, tries to lash out and kill him. But in doing so, this kills his sister, the daughter. Um, and in killing her, the planet takes a turn for the worse. The son then shows Anakin a vision of the future, a vision of exactly what he will become as Darth Vader. It was the little excerpt I played a minute ago. And you hear in that quotes from episode three, direct quotes being shown to Anakin as he is shown exactly what will happen to him, exactly what he will do. And the son uses that to almost make Anakin fall to the dark side. And it is only through 
the strength of Anakin's bonds with Ahsoka and Obi-Wan that he is able to, you know, come out from under the sun's control. The Mortis arc is fantastic. I'm not doing it justice at all. It's one of the much more interesting, much more cerebral arcs of um, Star Wars. One of the more cerebral stories in Star Wars as a whole. Telling some very interesting ideas on what the Force is, which is something that George Lucas has always hinted out but never really elaborated upon. And the idea of exactly what Anakin's role is going to be in bringing balance to the Force seems to be something quite discussed in this arc. For example, this is the first reappearance of Liam Neeson as Qui-Gon. Um, and he's actually able to physically manifest and appear and talk to um, Obi-Wan. Uh, Ahsoka is also given a vision of her future. Um it's very, very interesting and lays a lot of the groundwork down. And one particular line from it got latched onto when season seven came out, which was um, Obi-Wan's line to Ahsoka and Anakin quite early on, where as long as the three of us stick together, we'll be perfectly safe. Or we'll be fine, something like that. As long as the three of us are together. And obviously, as the series goes on and as episode three goes on, we see that the three of them are separated and it becomes their downfall. There's more to the Mortis arc that explains, explores the tragedy of Anakin. We still see that Anakin, despite being a hero and being a, a you know an instrumental leader in the Clone Wars, he's still prone to his fits of anger. His reactions um you know when he learns about the slavers who have taken a whole a whole planet's population hostage um you know with his own experiences growing up as a slave his visceral reaction to that um is incredibly interesting and you know shows that anakin still has darkness in him um, you know, in fact, if anything, the sun might have brought it closer to the forefront because a lot of Anakin's major moments of darkness come after the Mortis arc. Um, you know, Anakin has now touched the dark side. Um, and as a result, his downfall may be even more inevitable now. You know, we see... There's one particular story arc where um, Obi-Wan has to fake his death to go undercover and infiltrate a, a group of bounty hunters. And to fake his death and to really sell the idea that Obi-Wan is dead, um, they don't tell Anakin. And Anakin's reaction when he hunts for the Jedi who supposedly killed Obi-Wan. You know, he is incensed. He is a, a true man on a mission, to the point that he even scares Ahsoka, who is following with him. You know, it's it's very, very well done. 
Um, and I do think it's helped by Matt Lanter doing a brilliant job as Anakin. Um, and I think... Hayden Christensen in episode three, in some ways, is almost a bit of a step down um, from how strong and capable Anakin is presented um, in the Clone Wars. But, as I said, the Clone Wars do kind of account for that as well. We see that Anakin is strong because of the people around him. His relationships with Rex, Ahsoka, Obi-Wan, Padme. And throughout the final phases of the Clone Wars, he loses all of them. Not just across the Clone Wars itself, um, but going into episode three as well he loses ahsoka when she's ex when she leaves the jedi order after her trial and that has a pronounced effect upon him you know it irreparably damages their own bond and relationship even when she returns in episode seven he wants things to be exactly as they were and she makes it clear that they won't be and it's almost quite heartbreaking to see, especially knowing what comes next. Um, you know, Rex leaves him to join up with Ahsoka to give her aid in her mission. And then following that through into episode three, where Padme and Obi-Wan are separated from him as well. I like it. I think it's very well done. And I think... The fall of Anakin is something that was inevitable. It was inevitable when uh, Episode 3 was originally released. It's inevitable when Clone Wars started being made. And I think a good groundwork is laid to explain it. Across the film and the series. And I think... It's one of the most important parts of episode three and the use of it, the whole idea of what the chosen one is, what Anakin's destiny is and how well suited he might be for that destiny is teased, you know, throughout the Clone Wars. And then, you know, despite evolving as a hero, Anakin is still the same character we come to know across episode one and episode two he's he may be a warrior but at times he is still a very scared and frightened child um who is angered by suffering and the clone wars had no end of suffering were the guardians of peace and justice in the old republic before the dark times before the empire a young jedi named darth vader who was a pupil of mine until he turned to evil 
couldn't not include that little uh, section there that if for anyone who wasn't aware was the soundtrack for the original episode 3 teaser trailer which if you haven't seen it I strongly recommend I like I said I watched it on repeat for weeks leading up to the release of episode 3 I loved that trailer um, how it combines all the elements of all the different films um, to tease what was the culmin at the time the culmination of the saga um, I think I've covered pretty much any- everything I do want to talk about about the Clone Wars now I think I've made my point that the Clone Wars enhances um, not just the prequels but makes episode 3 a better film and I've barely even talked about some of the other storylines in the show um for example there are various bounty hunter storylines um with their own recurring characters um which are incredible there's uh, a whole story where Ahsoka goes with some Jedi younglings to make their own lightsabers um you know, there's a, a story where she encounters Chewbacca and he saves her life. Um, you know, there's, you know, and all these introductions of, of characters old and new throughout the, throughout the saga, not just the, the prequel characters that we see get developed, but also characters who would logically have been around in this time, like Tarkin and Akbar and Chewbacca and getting more of them. Um, it's great to see. I really, really enjoy the Clone Wars. Um, and as I said, Episode 3 is my favourite Star Wars film. Um, I think it's... Not the best. I don't think it is the best. As much as I, the argument of this is why this makes Episode 3 the best Star Wars film, I think if you were to look at a technical metric episode three isn't the best star wars film i think in terms of its storytelling it's one of the best um and it's it's visuals are incredible um as well i know there's a lot of people who might complain and say oh but there's too much cgi oh but it does this to the lore and so don't care Canon should always be a guideline. It should never get in the way of telling a good story. Um, you know, if it does, you can find a way to retcon it or people can find a way to headcanon it in. People have been doing that with comics for years. 
So I don't believe that canon is an excuse. And, you know, yes, there is a lot of CGI in Episode 3. There wasn't all of the prequels. However, Episode 3 had more sets built for it than for the entire original trilogy, which is one of my favourite little facts. Um, and it's just a, a great addition. You know, a lot of those things that the characters are interacting with on screen, yeah, they're real. <sighs> Yeah, I really like episode three and I really like the Clone Wars. And I haven't even touched how elements of the Clone Wars, like I said, this is the only thing apart from those original six films that Disney kept as canon when they took over. And they've now used the Clone Wars and the elements introduced in it to build so many of their other series or to reoccur in so many of their other series. Obviously, um, Star Wars Rebels, the first cartoon series that they did, um, you know, it went into production very soon after um, Disney took over, um, which again featured Dave Filoni at the helm. You know, the the main character, Harrison, one of the main characters, Harrison Dula, she is a um, relative of Cham Syndulla from the Ryloth um, mission. Um, I think Saw Gerrera also appears in it as well. And Ahsoka reappears now as a, a grey Jedi. And she has an encounter with Anakin on Mortis as well. Not just anywhere, on Mortis. Or Mortis plays an element in the finale, at least. Um, you know, there's the, um, the Bad Batch, which is the most obvious successor. Um to the Clone Wars. Uh, season 1 came out, um, was it last year, earlier this year? Uh, I haven't got around to watching it yet. I, I really do want to. Um, and Bad Batch Season 2 is coming out uh, next year and looks like a lot of fun. In fact, one of the Jedi younglings is reappearing in Bad Batch um, Season 2 by the look of it, um, judging by his appearance in the trailer. And... Again, based on the appearances in the trailer, it looks like Bad Batch Season 2 will be taking more of the kind of anthology approach that Star Wars took, um, where each episode might not necessarily focus on the Bad Batch themselves, um, or at least will introduce other characters around them. So that could be a lot of fun. Um, Kenobi even fought Maul in Rebels. Um Darth Maul reappeared in Rebels. Obviously, he had the, the post credit scene in um, Solo as well, um, which came out after his uh, appearance in Rebels. The appearance in Rebels has him in a final fight with Obi-Wan Kenobi in the Sands of Tatooine, where Maul is killed. Um, and then, of course, there's how a lot of this stuff has reappeared in... Um, you know, the Mandalorian era series. Like I said earlier, Ahsoka's getting her own series. She reappeared in the Mandalorian and the Book of Boba Fett, but also um, the character of Cad Bane reappeared in the Book of Boba Fett um, as well. Cad Bane being one of the bounty hunters um, that I mentioned and have, have barely talked about. There's numerous other characters as well. There's the character of Hondo Anaka, um, who is a, a smuggler, rebel, rogue type that encounters Obi-Wan and Anakin several times. Um he reappears um, in Rebels, I believe. I think one of the... I think there's a character who reappears 
again, I believe in rebels. It might even be somewhere else who is a child of Dathomir, like one of the last surviving night sisters. She was a child during the massacre. Um, you know, so much of this has been, has come back in some way or another. Um, that I think you can't write the Clone Wars off. You know, if you care about Star Wars, I think you owe it to yourself to watch the Clone Wars. You know, even if you only watch certain episodes, but at least to watch a good chunk of it. Um, because there is some great stuff in here, and it's stuff that I think, because of how we undervalue animation in the West, um, was written off as kids' fare for the longest time, when it is... It's the, the the big best example you can think of of all ages content. I mean, Star Wars is for kids. Like, if you really look at it, Star Wars is for kids. It's not for adults, but it's for families. It's for all ages. Star Wars is designed for children. It's designed to make money by selling merchandise, selling toys. You know, that's one of the main reasons Disney bought it. You know, in the same way that they bought Marvel, because they wanted toy lines that they could sell to boys. Because Disney had the very successful Disney Princess line, which covers pretty much everything girls might be interested in. So they wanted Star Wars and Marvel to sell to boys. Disney is a money-making machine for children. Yeah, sorry, Star Wars is a money-making machine aimed at children. You know, despite how much some of the fandom take its so 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 seriously like way too seriously star wars is designed for kids so if you can't write off clone wars or rebels or the bad batch and say they're for kids and then watch the films that seems like such a <sighs> such a contradiction to me you know either you're interested in star wars or you aren't and the clone wars is peak star wars and not only is it incredible in in and by itself it makes episode three the best star wars film right uh thanks for sticking with me through all that that is the conclusion, not just to this episode, but also to season three. I'm hoping to be back uh, next week with the start of season four. I have two episodes I'm planning to launch season four with. Um, one is commenting on all of the news and announcements we got from Marvel not very long ago. Um, you know, regarding their upcoming slate um, for Phase 5 and Phase 6. Um, but I'm also looking to comment on the Warner Brothers DC merger in less cheerful news and specifically look at what it means for the future of DC Comics um, with their films and shows, uh, a number of them already being cancelled and several others on the... Um, on the chopping block by the look of it so that's what I'm planning to do following that I have an episode planned on the Orville which is reaching its fifth anniversary this year 
Um, so I thought it was a perfect time to take a look at that. Um, if you're very, very lucky, I may have all three of them ready at once. Who knows? Um, but yes, that is the my long-awaited Star Wars episode. As this grew into something so big, I decided it had to be the end of the season. Um, and I'm glad for everyone who's been patient for it, and I'm glad that you've stayed and listened to it. Um, sincerely, from the bottom of my heart, as always, thank you so much for listening and continuing to support this podcast. Every single one of you who listens to this, every time I see a play or on either any any of the streaming apps or on YouTube, it you know makes my heart happy. Um, and it means so much to me Uh, and this is the sort of thing I would love to be able to put all my time and effort into rather than like a standard 9 to 5 so every single one of you that continues to support it means the absolute world to me Um, look after yourselves uh, until next we meet my friends Um, you know times are hard Um, you know if you're I mean, I, I live in the UK, so things are, are very, very hard, and they, they look like they're all going to get harder before they get better. But let's keep looking after each other and reach out to me. And it, you know, if if you can't reach out to anyone else, you can reach out to me. That's what the Discord that I set up is for. I want people to come together and build a community. Um, where we can share memes and art and and jokes and all these other things to to keep ourselves mentally well. Um, so yeah, until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves. Thank you, my friends, for listening to another episode of Gardo Goes Geek your consistent engagement with this podcast and this channel means the absolute world to me and i'm thankful for every single one of you if you would like to get in touch with me to discuss anything further about the podcast maybe suggest episodes or topics you might like me to cover then please feel free to reach out i now have a discord community which i am trying to build up and i would love to see more of you there the link for it can be found in my link tree which is published wherever you have heard this podcast also if you would like to support me in any way um, then please feel free to buy me a coffee on my coffee link thank you for listening and have a wonderful day Thank you.